Hey folks, thanks for joining me for this episode of the Embellish Podcast, an opportunity for me to ramble about whiskey or something or anything for a few minutes, or even get the opportunity to interview some folks. If you got here by chance, please hit the take a moment to hit the subscribe button. Hopefully I can be found on any pod, podcasting platform that exists. If you can't find me on a platform, send me an email at embellishpod at gmail.com, and I'll try to get that taken care of. You can find all of my links on Instagram at EmbellishPod. I have a website. It is www.embellishpod.com. It's a place to pick up these links, episode details, and more. Uh, enough of the housekeeping. This evening, I have Doug, Demi Tastes, um, a man of many, many links, which you should be able to find in the show notes <laughs> on this. Uh, but I'll give him a chance to kind of introduce himself, and then we'll get into the meat of the conversation. Yeah, hi. Um, I'm Demi Tastes. Uh, my real name is Doug, uh, but I mostly just go by Demi Tastes around the internet. Um, I am first and foremost a whiskey nerd. Um, I got started uh, basically just drinking uh, what I felt was interesting, and then I realized that I sort of had thoughts and tasting notes sort of came naturally to me, so I started writing reviews. Um, pandemic came along. I joined some online communities figured out there's a whole bunch of people like me. Uh, it's a good way to have a dialogue and learn new things. And uh, the more you learn, the more you want to learn, and then the more you want to share, at least somebody like me, I have sort of a, a side passion for um, introducing people to things. I wouldn't say teaching necessarily, because um, I think I'm probably best at explaining things to people who know almost as much as I do, which isn't really great for uh, bringing newbies in, but I'm always practicing that skill. Um, across lots of different things. Uh, you kind of have a list of stuff that I'm interested in, but you know, besides whiskey, I'm into music. Um, I've been playing viola for 22 years, I think, um, and mostly in a hobby capacity, but I was really serious about it in high school and college. Um, I'm also an athlete. I've always been doing something, usually on the water. Uh, currently I'm doing Dragon Boat. Um, so, uh, oh, also I'm an engineer. So I'm using my brain all day long. I always have to balance these things, right? My uh, my brain work and my physical work, my, you know, athletics against this thing that is bad for all of those things, drinking whiskey. Yep. Um, and so I'm also a big advocate for dry weeks and, and moderation. Um, mm -hmm. And that's kind of, there's a whole ethos that goes into that. I'm sure we'll get real deep into it today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we this, this hobby is effectively about consuming poison. I mean, like we're, we are literally just drinking uh, small quantities of poison for our own enjoyment, which is, there's probably some sort of uh, therapist communication that we probably need to have, but we'll, we'll hold that for another time because I don't know that either one of us is qualified for that. I know I'm not. Um, you know, I, I did poke around on on who Doug really is quite a bit um, for the last couple of days. I didn't see therapist on there. So, nope, that's not me. I'm an engineer. So, uh, how did you get into whiskey to begin with? Like where 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 did where where does this come from? Because you know very few people, and, I, and I've heard this before. Like you know, all these things are acquired taste. It's wine, it's whiskey, it's beer, it's whatever. Now that wasn't necessarily the case for me. I don't I don't know if if I was the weirdo or not, but um, it was never a thing. But usually there's this like moment that it goes from like a a casual college person type interaction with alcohol consumption to now I'm a little bit nerdy about it. Yeah, I, I don't know if I could put my hand, uh, my finger on directly when that happened exactly. Um, but I'll say that uh, and you, you've talked about the wink and the nudge of like, oh, I never had a drink before I was 21. That is absolutely 100% the truth for me. Mm -hmm. I was uh, I was always a rules follower. So um, before I turned 21, I only ever had a drink of uh, a sip of wine or beer here and there, maybe like New Year's Day, something like that. Um, 
on my 21st birthday, I happened to be in Seattle where I, the Seattle area where I live now, I was in Seattle for an interview. Um, and a good friend of mine, his parents actually took me out to dinner and on my birthday bought me my first drink of wine, which went very badly. Um, it wasn't that it, it wasn't that I was overly intoxicated. It just really upset my stomach, mm -hmm. um, which is a horrible thing to have happen the night before an interview. <laughs> um, and so for that and other reasons, I think I kind of bounced off of wine pretty hard. Um, I kept coming back to it and it always kind of something about wine, maybe other people have experienced this, something about wine, especially red wine kind of makes me feel funny, like mm -hmm. not in an alcohol way, but like in a, mm, my head feels hot or my stomach feels queasy, um, something like that. So, um, I always kind of felt like, I think growing up, me and my friends felt that I would be the kind of person to get into fancy things. <laughs> um, which I think for the most part hasn't really happened. I, I think that came from like, I play viola, which is kind of like, kind of a pretentious, I mean, it's not as, it's not as pretentious as violin. I have to throw in the violin jokes. Um, <laughs> but you know, playing classical music is a little on the pretentious side. And I think people say, oh, you know, classical music goes with wine. Doug's going to be a wine drinker. Uh, none of that happened. I, I pretty much, um, drinking didn't really appeal to me a whole lot until I think I didn't really get into it until I was about 23 years old. Um, and I had a work team that liked to go out on Fridays and have lunch with beers. And it was like a specialty bar with like lots of rotating taps and specialty beers. And I got to try a lot of different things and realized that within this one category of alcohol, it's not just, mm -hmm. I didn't like the kind of beer that you drink in college, like the, the really light, uh, you know, I think Bud Light Platinum was probably the best of the things I had in those days, um, <laughs> which if you mix that with orange juice, you get something pretty close to a mimosa. I'm just going to throw that out there. <laughs> um, I haven't heard that one before. I'm going to have to put that on the list of things to not try. <laughs> yeah, you'd be perfectly fine to not try it, I think. Right. Um, yeah, so realizing that there's this whole breadth of uh, interesting things to find in one type of beverage uh, I think sort of opened my mind up to the idea that there was uh, more breadth to be had in things like whiskey, where in college it was just, you know, Jack Daniels, occasionally the Maker's Mark, Crown Royal. These though Maker's Mark and Crown's Royal were the fancy versions of yep. if you're drinking whiskey at a party. And I just kind of like, I was like, oh, this is kind of boring, right? I, I pretty quickly figured out that I didn't like to drink to become intoxicated. Mm -hmm. um, and so things that weren't flavorful to me were not things that I enjoyed. So it was beer and cocktails for me for a long time. But in the midst of all that, um, I got to have uh, a bourbon now and then with dad. Um, and actually, I think the first thing that really captured my attention was Wild Turkey 81. Okay. Um, I think it was because it had that low enough proof that it was accessible to me. And that flavor profile was just really nice for me. Um, I think that's pretty much where it stopped for a while. Uh, pretty much just went between Wild Turkey and Maker's Mark. Whenever I ran out of one, I would buy the other, or sometimes I'd take a chance on something I saw on the shelf. And that was years and years of whiskey at home because whiskey is too expensive to drink when you're out. If I'm going to spend $9 on a whiskey, I might as well spend $7 on a beer that I like better, mm -hmm. um, was pretty much the thinking. So then I went to Japan in 2015. And uh, this was just around the time where Japanese whiskey was kind of taking off. And I took it upon myself to go hunt for Yamazaki 12 because I'd heard that was really good. I found it for the equivalent of, I think, about 60 US dollars, which is like an unheard of price for Yamazaki 12 these days. Um, really liked that. Got it as gifts for my, for my dad and my father-in-law. And um, 
I think that was sort of like, oh, this is this is whiskey that can be fancy. And then after that, I bought a Nika 12, um, which is hard to get if it if it even exists anymore uh, these days. It's mm-hmm. sort of like Japanese whiskey ended up being like, this is the I'm going to have this on special occasions drink. And I felt myself more and more pulled to drinking that sort of thing. Like I was looking forward to those things more, the highly flavorful special occasion drinks as opposed to the everyday drink of whiskey wasn't really something that appealed to me. Um, and beer at some point, like for athletic reasons, like I wanted to control my weight a little better. Um, you know, I sort of petered off of drinking beer, I guess. Um, so and whiskey ended up being more and more the thing, but there was still just kind of a big break where I wasn't drinking much of anything. Um, and the pandemic came along and I said, well, We've got this little pandemic pod. I think a lot of people had that, right? You've got like uh, six mm-hmm. people or so maybe that you all see each other and you don't see anybody else. And this is a way of keeping your exposure down. And I said, well, we're not going to bars and we've kind of been drinking the same stuff. What I'm going to do is I'm going to build a cocktail bar. I'm going to build a cocktail cart. And what I'm going to do is every time we get together, I'm going to buy a new ingredient mm-hmm. and I'm going to build a cocktail around that. And that's going to be the drink of the night. That lasted for about a month or two, maybe. Um I bought a bottle of, of all things, a Reposado Mezcal and sort of went, oh, like this is a whole brand new thing. And it's smoky in a way that like that Dewar's white label I had years ago and didn't like was smoky, but like in a way better way. And I'm thinking, oh, like maybe because I've had spirits for a while in the, in the context of cocktails, maybe I have more of an appreciation for this sort of stuff now let me go back and try scotch so i went on reddit this is this is the moment i discovered the reddit whiskey circles i went on reddit and found the scotch subreddit and i was looking for um you know they had this whole list of resources they had recommendation threads it was actually like a great booming place to find stuff if you wanted to know and i was kind of going uh you know japanese whiskey is like getting hard to find it's too expensive now um what am I going to buy? And they actually had a guide. If you like this Japanese whiskey, you should try this scotch. And so I kind of started there and made a wish list. And then uh, for my birthday that year, we went on a shopping spree, total wine. Um, I bought like a Nika from the barrel, which so like I'm still in that Japanese wheelhouse, but it's like mostly Ben Nevis. People kind of know now. Um, I bought some, I don't even remember the other stuff that I bought. I think I bought a Dewar's. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I think, one of the bottles I bought on that occasion was this uh, Dewar's Illegal Smooth that I was, and this I bought because, hey, that's Mezcal. Like, that's kind of my connection back to spirits and also scotch. And it's a nice mm-hmm. little transition piece. Maybe if you check the year that came out, you'll find out that that can't possibly have been 2020 when I bought that. That might have been a future shopping spree. But uh, mm-hmm. I bought a few different things, uh, started exploring. Uh, I bought. Um, two Irish whiskeys, I think one of them was red breast 12. Um, and I also bought like a little of the coffee Jameson, um, mm-hmm. uh, the Jameson cold brew. Um, and sort of, it was like a Jameson cold brew, Tullamore dew and red breast 12. I got together with a buddy of mine who plays trombone and we, and also enjoys drinking whiskey on occasion. And we actually were like, let's just try and write a review. Like, let's just try see how it goes. And I really, I think we did a good job. Uh, that ended up being like review number three to five that I posted or something early in those numbers. I wasn't the first thing I posted because I wasn't confident yet. Um, actually, there was there's a whole period of time. There's reviews I held back just because I wasn't confident in my tasting notes, let alone my scores. 
I ended up re revising almost none of them in retrospect. Mm -hmm. I finally had to have just a friend from the Whiskey Lodge, um, which was the Discord community that I joined. Um, and now I admin and moderate. Um, he was like, hey, like, just trust yourself. Like, the, what you thought then was totally valid. Just, like, mm -hmm. publish that, right? Don't, you know, don't get all up in your head. And I, I love telling people that, right? I want to hear what you think about the whiskey. I don't want you to be overanalyzing whether you had good thoughts or whether you wrote it well or whatever. I just want to know what you thought because we're having a conversation and that's a great starting point for a conversation. I think mostly I think of my reviews that way. I hope people find my reviews and say, oh, that was helpful. I can like, I know this person's palette and mm -hmm. maybe I've liked the other things they've recommended or I agree with them on this or that. This helps me find something I'd like or something that I don't want. Um, I hope that, but more than that, what I really enjoy is the conversations to start because I published a review or even just a couple of tasting notes and some basic thoughts like, uh, recently I tried Johnny Walker blue label for the first time, which around here is a $250 bottle. And I felt it was aggressively mid and that was yeah. my take. And I love when, like, I know that that's going to be a hot take and I love going into the whiskey lodge because it's full of people who think like me basically, where like, nobody's going to walk in there and pretty much say like, Oh no, blue label is the best thing ever. You're completely wrong for having that opinion. Like, I know I can take that opinion in, in there and be like, Hey, I had blue label. I thought it was kind of aggressively just mid tier, like five out of 10, maybe a six out of mm -hmm. 10 on a good day. What is, you know, I think maybe this is better or, or I've had things that are worse or whatever. And like, we can have a conversation from that starting point where it's like, Oh yeah. You know, I also didn't like blue label and almost always somebody chimes in with green labels, really the best Johnny Walker. And like all these online communities sort of have these memes that uh, sort of grow out of them. Anyway, I've been talking for a long time about like my travels through whiskey. <laughs> yeah, we so can it's get more it's, specific. It, it's an interesting star map, and I, I'm going to touch on the blue label Johnny Walker. And I think it, this is a thing that's pervasive across any spirit community that I've ever seen. Um, and largely, it's you need a brand that has a high degree of notoriety in its label, like a lot of people know it, and then whatever their premier thing is that's going to become the thing that people that are new to it, like you can be like, ah, blue labor, Johnny Walker is great. And a whole bunch of people are going to know what that is. Whereas people like you, people like me, people that once you kind of get into the groove a little bit, you start finding these other things that are significantly better. But if you walk into a bar full of people that have average whiskey knowledge, they're not going to know what you're even talking about. Right. Um, like an, an example is, and and it's one of my favorites. I've got a, a wild turkey father and son, thirteen year, right? That's a that's a that's an England only export. It's a thirteen year old, but all they hear is wild turkey, and they're like, eh, you know, whatever. Like you go to, you go to yeah. somebody that just sort of knows something about whiskey, and they're gonna sort of poo poo on it because it didn't have the initial brand notoriety that a pappy's gonna have or whatever, right? But I think that's it's significantly better than any of those uh, others. But you're the star map of your spirit's journey is beer to maker slash wild turkey to Japanese whiskey to mezcal to scotch. Like, yep. <laughs> that's that that's 
that's that's, that's pretty much weird. it. I, I I really should have reduced it that way. I was thinking, how do I even like tell this story? That is a very no no no. It's appropriate. <laughs> it is absolutely appropriate, and I enjoy the long form because it does give me the ability to throw the punchline of like how weird this actually is. It is it right if you hit weird, that yeah. first. Like it, it's it's an don't interesting forget the thing. cocktail cart. <laughs> yeah, the co- so that that's. You know, most of these bottles were my version of a cocktail cart during the pandemic. It's like, hey, I'm not spending money on gas. I'm not spending money on lunch. You know, I'm not going into the office anymore. I'm working here. So I just take all that extra money and start buying bottles um, to keep around. And then you start having to have an inventory sheet. The whole thing is very, very ridiculous, like non-real yeah. <laughs> problems. Um, a couple things. So sheet. It, it, it felt ridiculous when I made an inventory sheet, and that was when I had 50 It keeps bottles. you from accidentally buying the same bottle twice, unless you meant to, right? I, yeah. I, I did, the, the first time I did that, I was like, oh, sweet, I'm going to buy this bottle. I've been wanting to think about it, but that was for a while. Come home, sit it right next to the other one. I was like, <laughs> My bigger Maybe motivation, I, I think, was to make sure that I didn't uh, get the same sample again. Because mm-hmm. uh, these days I have, like, a network of friends who have... Yeah different bottles than me uh thankfully i like that we have a diversity yeah that's what you got that, a whole shelf yeah I've that's got, one uh, shelf there's one over here and there's some in the closet like i've got more than i can keep up with i pulled down my drawers of american single malt samples yeah talking about american single malt today yeah so we are we are gonna eventually talk about american single yeah. malt. and that didn't we even are. show up on the star map yet not yet I much but, I mean, it covered, sort of did uh, it sort of did we go back to the beginning of the star map right yeah. you start on beer yeah. And what's the beginning of American single malt is beer. Yeah. Right. Single so what was your general, beer? Yeah. Like what, yeah. what was your beer of choice? Like what, what style of beer was the, was the thing? Uh, I think the first beer, I, this sounds funny to me thinking back on it, but the first style of beer that I actually felt was like something special was a Hefeweizen. Um, mm-hmm. In Austin, there was a, there was a bar I went to with friends regularly and they had a live Oak Hefeweizen, which was a relatively local beer. Uh, something about that. I don't even really remember what it tastes like these days. Um, but like I would imagine pretty normal for a Hefeweizen. I think it tasted mm-hmm. maybe sweeter than other Hefeweizens I've had since then. Um, I guess I've kind of liked the sweeter side of beer. Um, mostly besides that, the things that I liked most were um, stouts and porters. And, you know, I, I wouldn't say that I was ever really a beer nerd. So I couldn't tell you really the difference technically between the two. But me either. Yeah. There, it, usually, <laughs> if if I'm in a bar and it's not the summertime, and you know, like I'm not buying whiskey, it's going to be you know, what is the darkest, most bitter beer that you have? Like I want this beer to be like my soul, dark and bitter. <laughs> or like my. And usually, <laughs> you know, if you're in the South, that one doesn't go over so well. People start getting real concerned about you, and you end up on somebody's prayer list. But if you're everywhere else, it's perfectly fine. So when I travel for work, and everybody else just sort of laughs, and they'll bring you something. Oh, that's um, funny. I heard jokes like that all the time in Texas. Maybe Texas is a little bit different from like Texas the rest is a little of bit the different South. than everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I also all like right. coffee, um, but I think I yeah. got into coffee uh, kind of around the same time I got into whiskey, or maybe a little after actually. Like, See, and the thing is, you said you, you said you said earlier on, and I'm going to interrupt you. I'm uh, I'm the guy. I'm the guy that's going to interrupt you. you. Said earlier that you, you your friends thought you were going to be the person who was going to get into like the finer things and the sort of you know like upper echelon of things you've already talked about effectively craft beer japanese whiskey scotch <laughs> and fine coffee right you're you're there you and your viola you're there you're, you're yeah it you're happened eventually level. uh it just I didn't happen with what, what just what just threw everybody off was it wasn't wine right 
uh, I, I still try wine every once in a while. It just never really like amazes me. It's tough to, I feel like it's really great to find an acceptable wine, but I, I don't know that I can ever find one that I'm like, man, that was it. I need to find that bottle. Yeah, that, so that actually, um, on that note, I think that has happened, but with mm -hmm. only like one wine, um, there was, uh, I think they're closed now, which is a shame. There was uh, a bar, not like a, not like an alcohol bar, I guess kind of an alcohol bar. There was, there was a chocolate and wine bar in Seattle that I went to probably three or four times. Um, and the bartender chocolate specialist guy who was always there was like really great with names and faces so like every time we went back he knew us um and he remembered every it was crazy like we wouldn't go there for a year and a half we'd be back there he'd remember everything that we liked and didn't like and even like what we were doing like what we told him we were going to be up to in the next six months um that sort of uh you know if we're talking about like elevating a product in the industry like that sort of salesmanship is what everyone should strive for right like if you've got a customer who isn't sure what they what they want but you remember them you can mm -hmm. convince them to buy just about anything yeah i mean that um, it's exactly i mean for for i mean it's not going to get me to to buy a mercedes benz when i came in to buy a pinto but it is going to get me to buy a 30 dollar uh, pour of whiskey instead of a 10 dollar pour of whiskey yeah i think there's a scalability problem there uh so the wine that i liked best there paired with dark chocolate was um a tempranillo which mm -hmm. i had never heard of before so usually when i see a tempranillo um or i guess for other reasons like a syrah like there's a couple of wines that i at this point recognize by name and i know i'm gonna like that uh pinot noir usually not my thing um mm -hmm white wines yeah that, that's terrible you're nothing. like you're like right in the 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 perfect zone for pinot noir right yeah you know maybe i just haven't found the right one um i keep trying the like you know california washington oregon stuff like the locals i really mm -hmm. like shopping local i think like local products if you can get them the best way to go mm -hmm. um which may actually be one of the reasons that american single malt stood out to me so hard um and also, you know, uh, we're at least I'm drinking right now the uh, the Westwood Pinot Noir cask. Um, oh, so I, I start I started with the wrong one. I started with the sourdough. Hold on. Well, I plan on having all three of them in a glass at the same time. At the same different, time, so we're different gonna, you're, you're going for a blend here, is what you're saying? No, no, not not a blend. Three different glasses. <laughs> um, eventually, because I think it'll be cool to side by side. Um, yeah, Westward is uh, a really good American single malt. Uh, I think they've done a real good job of the storytelling and the and the branding and getting the mm -hmm. getting the American single malt brand out there at a relatively affordable price. And they're always doing something interesting. Like I, uh, should we just go ahead and pivot right on into the quarterly? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, that's, it's fair, right? So I'll I'll, I'll kind of preface this with, you know, I have a significant interest in American single malt, and I think it's one of the places for the most significant growth growth in whiskey in North America um, in the very near future, be, simply because I think we're going to see a contraction in bourbon as people start spending money on other things. There's just a lot of opportunity for um, trying out ideas. Most folks that are making it are smaller holders. So the idea of being able to run an experimental batch of Pinot Noir is not the same as uh, Heaven Hills of the world being like, all right, we got to shut down production on this, you know, like 11,000 gallon tank to be able to run this experimental batch. 
So you get a lot of opportunity for that. But I think it was, was it last year or the year before that they hit their bottle redesign? Uh, the Westward? Yes. I couldn't tell you because I didn't really discover the brand until uh, until after the redesign. Every so, bottle I'd seen except at the distillery, the first sourdough they did was in the old bottle. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so this is this is within the last couple of years. Maybe that it was would last have been twenty twenty. So somewhere in so, twenty twenty is when they redesigned. This is possibly one of the best bottle design glow ups that I think I have seen in the yeah. last few years. Right, like yeah. this I love multifaceted gemstone looking kind of, yeah. angular design is. I mean, it went from a they, they had just a normal bottle. Yeah, I think they call it the aspect bottle, like the the cylinder with a half sphere and the little stubby neck. Yeah, yeah. And I think I've got, I think that was uh, Broken Barrel had the same thing. There's a bottle over here of Broken Barrel from a long time ago that had the same sort of design, almost identical to yep. this. And Perfectly acceptable. There's nothing wrong with it. But every, everything within reach, right? Virtually <laughs> identical to this, which is a maple syrup bottle that I have whiskey in right now. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Oh, green spot right over here. Virtually mm-hmm. identical to this. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it, it was a just perfectly fine design. There was nothing wrong with it. But they, they, they hit that bottle design and it was I mean, it's it just stands out on the shelf. It's it's beautiful. They are on the list of folks that I want to talk to in the next 12 months. Right. Like these are the people that I'm reaching out to and saying, hey, I'd love to have you come and talk to me. You don't even have to send me anything. I already have the things. I just want to talk about it. Um, but. All of this to kind of frame out talking about American single malt, which has been a significant interest of yours um, for a while. So how did we? Yeah. How did you get to American single malt? So we've gotten to Scotch, and I think I can see that transition a lot easier because you're into Scotch, but you also like to buy local. So it's really hard to buy local Scotch in the United States. Very, very, very difficult. Yeah, that's probably a part of it i i think that i didn't quite run out of my interest in i've virtually never gotten to the end of my uh my shopping list for scotch right there's always more that you want than your budget can support in a given month there's an end to the list i mean there there never has been so i'll let you know if i ever get there <laughs> you put one you take one off you put two on yeah sort of you try something uh especially when you start getting into like weird stuff and you start um mm-hmm. Like I, I get a Lechegue that's finished in a Rioja cask and it looks like uh, it's like a, it's like a copper penny color. Mm-hmm. It's the coolest colored whiskey that I have and it's no, no color added, right? It's all from the wine. Yep. Um, just like normally you've got that, the whiskey magazine has the scale from zero to two uh, and they've got all these things and they're all various shades of amber, more or less. Mm-hmm. Uh, you start getting into the sort of reddish mahogany and stuff, but you never get like, coppery tones you never get sort of this pink unless you're in wine cask whiskey mm-hmm. um and then the whiskey scale sort of falls apart at some point and that that uh that's a perfect example so you try something like that and you go oh like that style of peat is cool that style of wine cask is cool um let me go try another lechegue without the wine cask and let me go find another rioja cask right that's the perfect example of i tried one thing and i wanted two more mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, yeah. So how do I go I'm waiting from to find the whiskey to... I don't like, you know? True. Yeah. Well, you know, as a reviewer, there's, there's a few things that we like less than others, at least I would say. Right. Um, 
I doubt that I'm ever going to have any sort of a brand relationship with Johnny Walker. So I'm fine with saying White Walker was awful. It made my stomach hurt even when it was frozen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what you, I, I, I was I was listening to you talk about. It. You, 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 I think you said you didn't feel like it really made your stomach hurt until it thawed out in your stomach. <laughs> yeah, it was like at first it was like a cool like it's it's cold. It's like a cold mm-hmm. cocktail. And then it was like it started warming up and it was like, oh, no, that's not right. <laughs> You know, and they almost got me. You know, it's it's branding at that point, right? Because now they're combining a whole other thing that that I feel super nerdy and excited about. Because I started reading the Martin novels years and years ago, and then we hit the 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 White Walker, and then the the Scotch series that was all the different houses of uh, Game of Thrones, and I was like. There's nothing specifically unique about these bottles. There's nothing specific aside from the branding, aside from, but I still really wanted all of them. But then I heard the reviews come out on White Walker and I was like, all right, I feel good about not making that purchase. All right. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm in the background thinking, how exactly did I end up in American single malt? I think there's more to tell on the scotch story first. Okay. So I started reviewing scotch. Um, I, I wanted to swap samples and I found out through various means that there were people local to me who were doing that. Um, and that the least gray area way of doing that was to actually make friends and meet up before we decided to swap samples. Um, so basically did that, uh, one of, one of those people worked at the same company I did at the time. They felt like, you know, I was a perfectly reasonable human being. They introduced me to their other friends. So we have sort of a quarterly meetup group where we uh, we do a theme. We bring usually scotch, um, uh, to some extent, all whiskey, to some extent, spirits beyond whiskey. And sometimes we'll do a theme where it's like, guys, just stop. Don't bring anything that's single malt. We need to try other things. Um, but yeah, sort of mostly scotch. And we sort of branched out from there. Um, I think... If I'm not mistaken, the very first one of those meetups I went to, uh, one of the people I had never met before online or otherwise, because um, he's sort of like a, he's not online all that much, but mm-hmm. he's part of the group, um, brought with him, I did take it out, uh, the, uh, behind me, this blue label, the Lost Lantern American Vatted yep. Malt edition number one. Um and I just loved that. And immediately next to it on the table, one of the other people in the group is a big fan of um, specifically I, American single malt in general. A lot of the samples I have of American single malt are from him, um, but especially Balconis single malt. And Balconis was from my home state of Texas. Um, I lived there from when I was nine until end of college. So like most, most, most of my youth, I guess, in Texas, I consider it my home state. So, you know, Balconis being from my home state, I knew of them. I didn't know they made a single malt. Um, I wouldn't have known what that meant two years prior because mm-hmm. I, you know, scotch was scotch until I figured out that like Japanese single malt and scotch single malt have this single malt thing in common, mm-hmm. uh, which is sort of a great background for a future part of this conversation, I think. So basically, um, that uh that vatted malt and the balconis next to it uh sort of both made a great impression on me and made me want more of whatever that was so i looked at the back label of that i'm i could be rude and stand up face my back which i do have my own book my own podcast all the time but you know um 
So, you know, on the back here, they're like, okay, Balconis Distilling in Waco, Texas, Copperworks Distilling in Seattle, Washington. Wait, you mean they're local? I can get that here, mm -hmm. right? Uh, Santa Fe Spirits, Triple uh, Eight Distillery. I actually have not had that yet. Uh, Virginia Distillery Company and Westward Whiskey down in Portland. And I go to Portland once a year for athletic stuff. So I was like, oh, you know, I can, right? This stuff, it's not only just like, it's not like, it's not from Kentucky or it's not just from Texas. It's like, it's all over and it's, they've got um, Pacific Northwest stuff there. So uh, that sort of like opened me up to like, oh, there's like, this is a thing that I like and I can buy it local. I can get it here. So I sort of started going into that. I found out that Westland isn't even in that bottle, but Westland is a big brand around here. Um, I found out that a local bar called the Barrel Thief, great bar, want to give them a shout out, um, sort of scotch, whiskey, everything, whiskey bar. Um, they had, uh, I forget what they called it, some sort of uh, some sort of tasting club where they would run events. So they would have, uh, I did the Judgment of Westward, uh, I did the Judgment of Westland there, for example. Um, but they also had like Zoom events. So uh, Single Cast Nation did a Zoom event where they like, distributed i think five or six samples of different things and then had a zoom later um one of the ones was westland did a uh, preview tasting of Calaria edition one mm -hmm. and at the time i didn't understand the significance of that um because i didn't really know westland before that uh and i i didn't know the significance of a varietal of barley but that was like you know that was what they were trying to do and they totally sold me on the significance of it in that tasting. Like, here, try the... I have the samples here, actually, still. Like, this is the sort of thing, like, finish your, finish your open samples, but, like, I keep these because <laughs> referring back to them is really cool. And, like, you're always going to be able to try more of the flagship Westland. Um, and uh, the Caleri First Edition, like... I have a very different opinion of it every year I come back and try another half ounce of this. The first time it was like, oh, this is the most amazing thing that I've ever had in whiskey. That was my my genuine opinion of this, almost enough to get me to buy it, except it cost $183 out the door. And I mm -hmm. sort of went, eh, that's not quite in the budget. <laughs> I wasn't, wasn't ready for that much of a plunge because this was, you know, this was back in the time where my most expensive bottle was a Maker's Mark. Right. Right um that, or, that that was the prime stuff that was the prime stuff so like going making that stuff or like, arguably the yamazaki right mm -hmm. because it had been it become worth more um yeah this is like super like grilled pineapple um and it's got like this sort of ashiness to it which um i've come to describe as the westland barrel char note because mm -hmm. almost all of them have it um it's actually how i was i was dead sure that the whatever sample in the judgment of Westland was the Westland is because no other whiskey does that in my mouth. Like it doesn't have like that texture is so unique. Um, which that, that just comes from critically tasting things and, and, co and going back a whole bunch of times. Um, but yeah, this, uh, the Caleri was like, they're, they're saying, they were saying this is a significant whiskey. I think was, was the, the, the refrain um, that this is the first you know, American whiskey where we've cultivated a single um, cultivar of barley, the Alba barley, specifically for flavor generation, even at the cost of yield, right? It's not mm -hmm. efficient, but we think it'll taste good. And let's develop that. I thought that was the coolest thing. 
Um, I mean, it is the coolest thing, right? Like they're, they're and, yeah. and cause it's a thing that, that other people are, are, are chasing now. You know, you've got, um, <clears throat> mammoth in, in Michigan is, you know, um, propagating their own rye varietal on an Island off the West coast of Michigan to try to keep it from, you know, picking up cross pollination because rye is notoriously prom- promiscuous. Everybody's chasing down. And I was, I was listening to, um, a podcast with Alan Bishop from Spirits of French Lick, and he was talking about, you know, like every distillery should have their own grain, like through, you know, land race gardening or through selective breeding or whatever, you can find something that is both relatively okay for yield, but also regionally specific because terroir is is a thing, whether people want to argue about it or not. It is a thing in whiskey, um, and it may be not the same as much as the soil plays the role in wine that soil would play a role in whiskey, but the grain absolutely does. The aging absolutely does. The sourcing of the barrel wood absolutely does. The yeast, all of these things really, really do. And so you have this ability. So everyone should be, right? But there are, this is a thing that you see, or at least I've seen in American Single Malt, is a lot of these ideas are not new to them. They're just new to everybody else. Yeah. I think uh, beer figured it out a long time ago because you can't hide your grain. You can't hide your yeast. Yep. Uh, you know, wine, obviously, anything that grows for a long time is going to pick up the properties of where it is. I think that's why there's there's not debate that terroir is a thing in wine. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's To the extent that there's debate that there's terroir in whiskey, I think it is mostly down to the still eliminates so much nuance, depending on your still type, We'll get into yeah, that. Because if you're doing a pot, then yeah, the game's but if off you're, a little bit. But if you're if you're thinking from the context of bourbon, where almost everything is column still, yeah, and no, there's uh, not going to be. I mean, you, you've, yeah. you've ripped it out. Yeast is an ingredient that generates alcohol, not flavor. Is is the right. thinking for the most part with the column stills. Um, and then with some of the brands like Jack Daniels, you're going even further to say, once it comes off the still, let's put it through as much charcoal as it can handle until it tastes like nothing before it goes into the barrel. Um, mm-hmm. it tastes like nothing but smooth, which isn't a flavor. Um, and then, uh, and then it picks up the barrel flavors and barrel is what it tastes like. And I, mm-hmm. I think that, um, there's, uh, I don't, I don't want to state my opinions as if they are facts. So just, if I say something, I mean, they're facts to you. Like that, 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 I think, I think <laughs> anybody who should, I will go ahead and say this. Anybody who shows up here who doesn't understand that we're all really talking about just how we feel and that this is, you know, subjective, just get the fuck out of here. Like that's where Yeah. Like, when it comes to how things taste and how I think things should be made, it's all opinions. Absolutely. Uh, I think that it's it's a shame to sort of hide so many of your ingredient inputs to whiskey behind a column still. I think the mm-hmm. result is you know, I, I had the I had the wild turkey and I had the maker's mark and I've tried a bunch of other bourbons since then and I bought because it's so accessible. Bourbon is so accessible. You go mm-hmm. on a on a whiskey shopping spree and you know, I saw your spreadsheet of bourbon, which I thought was your entire thing at first until I realized there were other tabs. Yeah, you <laughs> gotta you keep have, the bourbon separate from everybody else. You have as much bourbon as I think my entire collection. Um pretty much. 
uh, so for me, I got to I got to about probably the thirtieth bottle of bourbon, and uh, I sort of stopped opening. Right, I got I opened like twenty of them, and I sort of stopped opening them. Right, it was like there was a little bit of a collector's anxiety mm-hmm. uh, thing that that sort of goes into like I gotta have I gotta have this cool thing because there's a it said you know it's finished in this type of barrel, and I think that's cool. I may never open it because I've got so much other bourbon that I basically think bourbon tastes more or less the same. Like bourbon. Mm-hmm occupies a very narrow band of flavors in my mind um and a lot of people that i've learned scotch things from feel the same way so take that with a grain of salt but um you know you could pretty much uh close your eyes and throw darts at a board and it just tastes like uh tastes like cinnamon caramel um vanilla uh, vanilla yeah uh char like oak char um oak i can't even like everyone i've once i think actually felt that oak was the appropriate flavor note Mm -hmm. because oakiness is a whole tasting profile thing that i think people have gotten carried away with it tastes oaky like it tastes like things that oak did to whiskey especially Mm -hmm. especially new charred oak which is kind of a very specific thing right you just the the barrel right bourbon is so constrained up until you get to the point where it's resting in a barrel and you're just waiting and it's like it's climate and maybe entry proof and time uh and it's not surprising to me that i feel that that produces a very narrow range of flavors out the other end Mm -hmm. right beer to me more flavor diversity than bourbon i think beer drinkers would probably agree with that um I wanted a whiskey that if I'm going to be buying bottle after bottle and trying different things, I wanted a type of whiskey that would, that would give me that diversity. Uh, and I felt single malt was the thing that was doing that for me. The Japanese single mm-hmm. malt, the Scotch single malt and the American single malt. When I discovered that I said, and it's based on a few examples. Um, if I could get philosophical on you for a moment, um, you ever think about how much of your own city you haven't seen? See, this is a bad question for me, right? Because you you live in a, and I would assume, uh, I don't know exactly where you live, but I got a roundabout area. You you live closer to a metropolitan area than I do by far. I live in a very small town in Western Kentucky where I grew up. So you've probably seen all of the city. Much of the city that I have not seen. Fair. But say you go to Louisville. Right. Right. How much of Louisville are you ever going to see, even if you visit every distillery that's there or every good restaurant that's there? Over the course of 43 years, I've probably covered 13, maybe 14 percent of Louisville. And that's yeah, a that's four-ish a hour fairly, drive from me. So. Fairly typical air, uh, uh, yep. answer, I think. Um, for me, I think it probably would have been like less than that, maybe five, 10 percent until I have mm-hmm. until I got a dog. And then you start going like, oh, like there's these little like these little pocket parks I could go visit. And you end up like seeing these little neighborhoods and everything you go. You know, I could every weekend of my life, I could find a brand new place I've never seen before. It may not be as good as the last place, but it's new at least. Right. Um, So with that philosophical backdrop in mind, um, it's entirely possible that there's a whole bunch of scotch, you know, back up two years and say, like, I've experienced a handful of scotches, a handful of bourbons and like three or four. American single malts. It's entirely possible that at that point in time that these categories have a massive overlap. So what did I do? More research. I bought more mm-hmm. scotch. I bought more American single malt. I found that like scotch is great. I love scotch, right? There's uh, they're well-established. There's a whole bunch of tradition. You pretty much know what you're going to get. Um, the smoky Isla scotches really do it for me. The sort of mainland scotches uh, can be hit or miss. Um, I like things that have a really balanced complexity to them. 
like Mm -hmm. a mix of sweetness and bitterness and um like tartness and meatiness and sort of a fatty oiliness right the the mouth feels important to me not everything has that i think especially the big market brands are aiming for smooth uh Mm -hmm. and especially um uh, there, there's, you know, hot takes around chill filtering. I think chill filtering does make a difference to the, uh, to the mouthfeel, if nothing else, arguably probably flavor as well. I think that, I think that fatty, you know, fat soluble flavor compounds and fatty flavors are a significant thing that I like, uh, as someone who, I think I got into tasting like via being a foodie before I really got into alcohol, like, you know, going to, I guess my my before all this alcohol stuff, uh, my outlet for the finer things was was fancy restaurants. Uh, you know, I like sushi and um, you know a nice steak in a French restaurant now and again. Um, I don't know if I could like off the top of my head name any good restaurants, but that's not really the point of the conversation, yeah. right? Uh, I I think that um, as far as whiskey is concerned, uh, people are underrating how much those uh, those uh, you know, not soluble at cold temperature molecules are doing to the flavor. I don't really understand how you can argue that makes no difference. Uh, But, you know, it's hard to know because uh, Mm -hmm. it's notoriously difficult to find a side-by-side of something that is exactly the same, like all else equal, one's chill filtered and one isn't. And to see what the difference is between that. Basically, unless you work at a distillery, you might, from an academic perspective, do that experiment and then make the call about whether you value that difference or whether it's, uh, or whether it's better for the brand to go one way or another on that. Uh, I, I think economics dictates that more often than flavor. So if you can market non-chill filtered, which um, you almost never notice in American whiskey, like who says non-chill filter? It's becoming more common, it's, but like it's it's on labels, but it's not it's not a it's not a it's not a marketing term. It's not a term that the that anybody's paying attention to, and, and you know, like the, there are terms that people have traditionally paid attention to in bourbon that are also going away. Um, you know, like blended blended bourbon, fifteen twenty years ago was a was a naughty word, and now you've got folks that are taking different distillate from different states and blending it together to create something unique like, you know, barrel or uh, <clears throat> Penelope or any of these folks that are like blending what you might consider to be similar to independent bottlers or whatever else, right? They're not just sourcing just a single distillery. They're creating kind of a new thing, right? So chill filtered exists on some bottles, but nobody's paying attention to it. And, and to your point, I think you're right. I think that, I mean, for, a process that is very, very highly regimented and highly controlled and highly uh, paid attention to because everything could have a flavor impact to say this entire process has no flavor. Then why are you doing it? Like if it has no impact aside from maybe making it clearer or prettier or whatever, I don't like it. You're you're not going to take the risk. And and I think they end up saying, uh, it, it looks like a flaw when you put your whiskey on ice and it gets cloudy. Therefore, we want to fix the flaw, and we're going to argue that it makes no difference besides. Can I the tell appearance. if my whiskey is cloudy if I put it in the glass and I put it with ice, and the eye and the, and the glass starts to condensate because it's now getting cold, colder than the room is, right? Like, can you really tell it's cloudy? Like, is this a real thing? I don't know that I've ever noticed that. Uh, I think I think if you if you chill a bottle of whiskey and it's like 
yeah, your your frozen bottle of wild turkey is going to be frosty when it comes out of the freezer, mm-hmm. so you're just never going to see it. Um, and I think I don't remember who wild turkey. I think is is chill filtered anyway, but um, I I, th- I think and I, I could be wrong. I think I think I've heard this is that basically anything that's sitting above like ninety five or ninety six proof, it doesn't really matter anyways for clarity's sake. If you're going to ice it down, it only really really impacts at lower proofs. Which yeah, maybe that I'm, makes a difference. That makes a difference in the Scotch realm because there is a lot lower proof, a, lo- a lot more offerings in the lower proof range. You know, lower proof for a bourbon person is anything below ninety five. You know. Yeah, I guess I want to be thoughtful about how I how I phrase this because for me, almost everything is a neat sipper. Almost everything. Um, yep. Bourbon, I would say fifty fifty. I intend to use in cocktails at least, uh, mm-hmm. at least to the degree of like a an old fashioned or a Manhattan, like as few ingredients as I can put in it. If I want to taste the whiskey, um, and there's really not a whole lot of cocktails I want to make where I won't taste the spirits because the spirits for me are the the more complex, the more artful. The mm-hmm. like even when I'm having a cocktail, I want to know, I want to I want to experience the personality of the spirit that went into it, uh, and even down to the nuances of one brand is different from another. Um, so that's me, but the market at large is going to be putting things in cocktails, uh, at which point, unless it's a, unless it's a boozy, clear cocktail, like a Manhattan, you're not going to notice. No. And I don't think that, I don't think, like you said, the glass is going to be sweating and whatever. I don't think you're going to notice it be a little cloudy. Um, an old fashioned, there's so much going on in there. You've got the sugar and the bitters and the orange. Like if anybody even notices there's a cloudiness to it, their first, their first thought isn't going to be, Oh, the whiskey was flawed. <laughs> I mean, I don't know that I've ever paid attention to the clarity of anything that I've drank aside from a glass of water, right? Like I'm, I'm going to pay attention to yeah. that one. I'm not looking for floaters in it, but if it's got any color to it, like, is, is it that the glass wasn't like, there's, there's so many things that kind of come into play in that. I, and it, yeah, it has, it, the, 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 it has to have some sort of an impact but back to the original point of like, yeah. you know, chill filtering has some degree of impact. Yeah, probably does. Um, and this is more to say like, there's, you know, everything with the column still and the chill filtering and everything. It's like, we're doing it. We're doing the best we can to take flavors away for mm-hmm. the, for the benefit of homogenizing what was maybe a flawed product through the uh you know through through the efforts to scale up alcohol production you end up needing to make compromises to take a product that is maybe more unpredictable i shouldn't say flawed but maybe more unpredictable i i think you're right so and, and this is this is where i'm i'm you and i will depart in our our thought processes largely most of bourbon up until the last 10-ish years in my mind is all about repeatability like they want the same thing over and over again and so to have repeatability you have to eliminate any variables that are going to change that thing right and so they really are trying to if we think about anywhere between you know 1965 and 2010 2007 we'll just say 2007 right they're largely just trying to find a way for someone to buy their product because no one cared about bourbon at that point in time. Like they, your, your Wellers and Pappies of the world were sitting on the shelf every single day for retail prices for a long time. And I, and I distinctly remember this because I sort of, sort of started getting back into whiskey in 2007 ish. Right. And by 2010, your Weller 12, which was on the shelf for 
was now going for $60 in secondary markets. That was the first time it was starting to pop up is in the late 2000s, like late 2000s, early 2010s. And I was like, there's no way. I'm not going to It breaks your heart. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, I'm never going to do it. And and I think about it now, like, because I was, you know, almost, I was 27, 28. If I had to take every dollar I had and bought every single one of those bottles and held on to them, I could retire now, right? Like I, I absolutely could retire because of what happened. But most of bourbon built in this idea of let's be as inoffensive as possible. Let's be as passable in a cocktail. Let's be the thing, you know, makers was still marketing to the grandpa or the dad who's sitting at home on the couch drinking, you know, they literally marketed towards a gentleman's whiskey. Like that's what they were really, really after. But Jim Beam, Jack Daniels. It looks Jack good on Daniels a shelf, though. I've got got my bottle of Maker's. Yeah, no, it's it's there. a beautiful bottle, and it always has been. But they were really good about marketing it. But they weren't largely doing anything that was going to be incredibly offensive. And I think you see, or at least I saw, you start to see in the late, you know, two thousand to the early two thousand tens is when you start seeing some unique things start to happen with Jim Beam, with Maker's Mark, with all of the premier players, which also kind of aligns to other things. Now they're starting to rethink what they were doing. They're making rice whiskeys. They're um, starting to finish in different types of oaks. They're, they're, they're exploring a place. And what it is, is you know things like American Single Malt came into a realm of being able to explore and do whatever the hell they wanted to. But bourbon was still trying to recover and still sort of looking back towards this time when people wanted clear liquors to put in cocktails for 30 years and they almost went broke and the only reason they didn't go broke was because japan and england were still buying bourbon by the bucket loads um, because they appreciated whiskey so they're always looking back that direction and they're less likely to do it that's why you will see there are a lot of bourbons here but there's also a lot of craft bourbons because i think that's in a similar vein those folks are doing some of the experimentation that american single malt is doing because that's largely craft distillers as well but now we're starting to see premier players step into American single malts as well. You know, you've got Jim Beam is in the game, um, and and um, Luxco with Yellowstone. Like you got all these people that are now starting to make American single malts because they see it. Do you think? And I'm gonna. This is a hard transition at this point. Do you think that they're starting to play in this realm because there is some degree of standardization that's happening within the definition of American single malt? Uh, when you say they. The larger distilleries, the the, okay. the, the, the yeah, Jim yeah. Beams of the world, the Maker's Marks of the world. Um, and I say Maker's Mark because they have not done an American single malt. But they are just released a label this week for 100% wheat whiskey. Nice. Maybe not 100%. I can't remember. Anyways, that, but it's a, that it's a feels on brand because they're all about their uh, their red wheat component of the, of the mash it's, bill. It's on brand, but it's not because they have not changed a mash bill ever. That's true. And it's always uh, been the same. Somebody somebody was saying on your podcast a while back that they were probably closer to how they were 30 years ago than almost any other bourbon. Absolutely. Aside from the Maker's 46 experiment, which is just about French oak, that's all that's really about. The mash bill hasn't changed. The yeast strain possibly has changed. Um, And, you know, depending upon how they distill, whether that has an impact or not. Uh, most commercial yeast strains are, like you said, are for yield. Um, but if you look at some of the craft distillers that are capturing their own yeast, they're finding localized yeast strains that do have an impact to what Westward is doing. They have this sourdough blend here, right? Like 
there is a local yeast strain that is going to have an impact on flavor. Maybe great, maybe not so great. Um, um, Leopold Brothers out in Colorado is doing the exact same thing. They have, you know, open fermentation tanks that allows for wild yeast to occur. All of these things. But do you think the attraction, do you think there is an attraction for the 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 beams of the world to participate in American single malt because they're standardization and so they feel like it's an even playing field or do you think it's just like there is a growing market and they're going to get into it or some mix of both uh I think oh there's a lot to say on this topic okay. uh sometime sometime around I don't know early 2021 uh I already had found out about the American single malt whiskey commission um mm-hmm. That's that's kind of a story in itself. I think there was a there was a part four to how I got into American single malt, which is uh, via the Whiskey Lodge, um, which I should I should do my part to shout out. Right, the Whiskey Lodge is the branding that I'm using for my podcast right now, uh, the, which is the Whiskey Lodge cast. It's not a podcast; it's more of a webcast because we're only doing Twitch and YouTube at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, this is uh, I I got permission from the owner of the Whiskey Lodge to use that branding. Um, as an admin of the Whiskey Lodge uh, to sort of put our philosophy out into the world. Um, uh, at the Whiskey Lodge, uh, which you should all go check out, there's going to be a link in, in, in the description to an invite to the channel, uh, to the server. Um, I'm not very good at social media. Sorry if I use the wrong terms. Um, no, you're fine. I'm t- <laughs> I, see, this is, this is the thing. Like I, I do this podcast. It's just a fun thing that I enjoy but I am terrible about the social media portion of it and the advertising and the trying to grow your following. Like I, if people come and they want to listen, this is great. If not, that's fine too. You know, I'm, 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 I'm not trying to make anything off this. So I get it. I am absolutely terrible at it as well. Uh, so the whiskey lodge, uh, as it turns out, uh, this is related to the other point. Uh, there are some producers of whiskey in the whiskey lodge. Uh, there's, there's certain, uh, forward thinking individuals and, um, I think less brands, and I, I almost hope that it stays that way, that uh, brands aren't really trying to use this as a marketing venue, uh, but the individuals who love their craft love to hang out with whiskey nerds, and when you're in a whiskey nerd community, every once in a while, you get uh, a nerdy distiller shows up and wants to talk about their stuff, but they also just want to talk about whiskey, and so um, mm-hmm. in the Whiskey Lodge, uh, the first producer that I met there was uh, Joe O'Sullivan from Clear Creek, the maker of um mccarthy's single malt mccarthy's oregon single malt which one you got there uh six year 100 percent heavily peated scottish barrel okay wait i don't know if i know that one is that a single cast release batch mc6 uh possibly yeah mc6 2101 oh okay no yeah i have that one uh I it was a sample sent for from a friend yeah, it's a it's a heavily peated six year old. Uh, that's their standard um, McCarthy's. That's their standard uh, six year release. The first one that they did. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, McCarthy's is my absolute favorite whiskey in the world. Uh, I I felt awkward saying that at first, but the more things I try, the more like if I ever don't know what I want to drink or if I'm if I'm having an unsure palate kind of night, I will grab a McCarthy's. I'm always happy and it's always great. It's always mm-hmm. consistently eight out of ten, nine out of ten for me. Um, it's just somehow a perfect match for my palate. Uh, even before I became familiar with it, when I had COVID and lost my sense of smell, the first thing that I could, that I could identify at all. And I identified it blind was a sample of McCarthy's I had never tried before. Mm -hmm. Uh, so in that particular sample will stand out in my head forever as the thing that got me over COVID. So I, some people 
theorize that you need something that is particularly pungent and memorable yep. to sort of kickstart your palate again after you've had COVID. I, I think the fact that I went from smelling like almost nothing in the floral direction to having almost a full sense of smell basically overnight. Um, I attribute that to the McCarthy's. Uh, it's how much I love it. I have almost uh, every, I would say almost every standard release since I found them uh, and, a, and a bunch of single barrels and some samples too. Um, I'm actually looking into doing a uh, barrel pick with them uh, for the Whiskey Lodge. Uh, nice. If we can get enough interest in that, um, I'm actually, hopefully the plans work out. I'm meeting with Caitlin Bartlemay this Friday to, uh, at the distillery to see what they, you know, what might be, what might work, right? There's, mm -hmm. there's an economics angle as well as like, yeah. does it, does it match my tastes? I have no doubt that it will because I love everything that they've done. Um, is there interest in it is the next factor for choosing a barrel. This is going to mm -hmm. be my first one. So like, I'm probably overthinking this. Um, no, I, I think so. This is this is, this is the caution because I have a, I have another friend who is going through the beginning of um, doing barrel picks. Right, uh, it's uh, David from Whiskey My Wedding Ring, and, and he and I have talked about it quite a bit, and actually sat in on one of his uh, one of his picks. And you want that first one to be a sell through relatively quick, right? Because you don't want it to scare you away from doing another one later on. Right. And if it takes mm -hmm. you six months to sell a barrel, how gun shy are you going to be able to do it next? Right. And so you want to make sure the economics are right. You want to make sure the interest is right. Then you got to know, like, is your audience big enough to support how many barrels per year? Right. If you want to do multiple barrel picks in a year, um, everybody's got a whiskey. You know, most everybody has a budget for their whiskey. Right. Mm -hmm. Some people just buy, but most everybody has a budget. So you got to feel those things out. And that's not an easy thing to sort of discover. Absolutely. Uh, so yeah, that uh, back back onto the story. So that discovering McCarthy's was sort of like I think the the fourth thing that happened. Where so I had had the um, I'd had the the Balconis and the Vatted Malt and the um, the Westland Colary tasting, and then I met Joe, and he was uh, uh, like honestly, what sold me on McCarthy's initially was Joe showed up in a voice chat on Discord. And, you know, we, we sort of do a round table and ask everybody what they're drinking. And Joe's like, I'm drinking McCarthy's. And I'm like, wait, don't you make McCarthy's? And he was like, yeah, I just <laughs> felt like drinking it. Right. right. Oh, also it's free. Like he was just so genuine. Yeah. I don't think it's, I don't think it's actually free. I think that was just a joke, but, um, <laughs> uh, I mean, look, I mean, so if, if you're making it, you got to pull out the samples every so often. And, and I've talked to several producers. They end up with, you know, we think we've got a lot of sample bottles. They're yeah, having to pull yeah, samples oh, yeah. to test barrels and uh -huh. they're not drinking them all every time. So then yeah. what happened? I saw Balconis's blending room yeah. and they had enough volume of samples out to be my entire collection of whiskey. Yeah. And that's just like what they were going through that day. And not surprising because mm -hmm. the barrel house is enormous too. Right? They've got more barrels than more floors than I saw and more barrels than I could put eyes on, on the one floor that I walked through. So, um, yeah, that's a whole thing. So uh, Joe was super uh, genuine about like just his passion for his own product. And and he wasn't like pushing it either. It was like mm -hmm. when he was done with that glass, he poured something else and like the whole conversation moved on. We played Jackbox games. Jackbox uh, is like, uh, if you don't know, it's it's like these games where you can uh, put up on like a stream or a TV or something. It's like a trivia game or mm -hmm. other sorts of stuff like that. And then like you can use your phone to play. So it works really well as a Discord hangout. Um 
so we do games like that and stuff um and we were just like the conversation just went on and like at some point in the conversation i decided like hey you know we've got this guy here who's a really cool dude we like hanging out with him he makes whiskey i should try that whiskey like he makes you know peated scotch style whiskey i like that i might as well go mm -hmm. try it so i went and bought a bottle which happened to be a, a single barrel it was my instant like almost near favorite whiskey on the very first try um, mm -hmm. and then I decided that I wanted to try another thing and that was a hit too. So I was like, okay, I just got to have everything that they make. Um, so that, uh, you know, that, that sort of that path through American single malt and then discovering my favorite brand of whiskey, having had dozens, perhaps hundreds of brands of tries under my belt at that point, uh, did, just made did you me know want that to... that was like the OG of American single malts at that point. Like that I didn't, is, that is sort of the genesis of it all. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know until I started doing research about American single malt. Uh, mm -hmm. I, <laughs> I started doing like, the research and you come across the name. You're like, I know that one. Know funny that enough, one. I think most of the whiskey podcasts that I listened to were because I was looking for interviews with. Um, I started by looking for interviews with uh, Joe and Caitlin, mm -hmm. anybody from Clear Creek. Um, I think I uh, and from there, I sort of like. Brands that got talked about, like I think uh, One Nation Under Whiskey did an interview with Copperworks. I was like, oh, Copperworks sounds really cool. They've got like a seven-day fermentation and they do everything mm -hmm. in small small batches of barrels and they've got a specific theme that they're aiming for and all this stuff. That's really cool. There's like a lot of artistry that goes into a brand like that. I want to know more about them. I want to try them. Um, there's so many brands that are like that now. I think a lot of American Single Malt... Uh, American Single Malt is the craft whiskey that is... I think is like the, is like the predominantly, how do I say this? American single malt is predominantly craft whiskey. Yes. So it almost feels like it is the craft spirit of the United States at this moment. I, I, I think that you make a, like the, the true spirit of the United States is probably corn whiskey is what it should be. But the first true one was rye. But if we look at like what actually matches the way the country is set up is, is is American single malt would be it at this point. Right. Um, and it goes back to, I've got a question on some standards cause you have a whole lot of thoughts on the standards that were proposed. I've got a couple questions that I do want to talk about on yeah. those. Um, we'll get there eventually. I'm not in any kind of rush. Um, but I think American single malt has the diversity to represent. Like if you were to pick up an American single malt or say a, a vatted four malt from, sorry, a quad malt from Frey Ranch in Colorado, or if you pick up American single malt from Kentucky or Texas or Oregon, they're all going to be different, and that's what makes them the most American, I think, spirit that exists. Whereas if you get the same bourbon, and they're going to be nuanced differences, but they're largely going to be homogenized, you know, because yeah. the primary flavors of bourbon are flavors that don't allow for nuance to, to kind of come through. I'll accept that. I don't. I don't want to get into a whole debate about bourbon because I think I have less mature opinions than you do, and I'm not sure I entirely. No, I mean, with all the, of that. I, there, I mean, there's. <laughs> I don't. I don't know that we diverge on that. I think the you know, bourbon is very much a, a brash flavor profile that it's hard for anything else to come out of than vanilla. The only way you get there is with um, unique wood finishes or unique cask finishes or you find craft distillers that are pot distilling capturing their own wild yeast you know there, there's got to be something they're doing but most yeah. of the bourbon you buy off the shelf is going to be commodity bourbon it's going to taste largely the same there is a very 
slight difference in the flavor profiles. And you don't really know if that's because there's a slight difference or just because you want there to be a slight difference because your brain can tell you a lot of things that maybe not be so true. I feel like there was a couple of points of clarification on earlier things just to completely <laughs> pivot from the bourbon conversation no, real quick. Uh, then we can come back to that question that you asked that was a hard pivot uh, about the about the big brands getting their space in American single malt, because I think that's that is a really interesting topic. Um, I was saying that uh, I don't I don't really understand wine. I haven't found a wine that like really tickles me yet. But there was one example um, on my honeymoon. We went to a French cafe for brunch and they served a Sauternes as uh uh, I guess it was the recommendation for the dish that we had ordered. Um, mm -hmm. I absolutely loved that. Um, so dessert wine is a category of wine that I actually do really get into, which I think overlaps with the fortified wines that are used so commonly in whiskey. Mm -hmm. That wine made me want to care about wine and made me want to care about wine and whiskey. I've actually gone and found not a Sautern, but um, a different... Um, the same grape, I guess, a different expression. I ended up finding a bottle sitting like dusty on a shelf in a total wine in a different town. Um, mm -hmm. That was like the first bottle of wine I'd ever gone hunting for because it was based on the specs. Um, I sort of wanted to recapture that honeymoon thing. Um, and it also bears mentioning, uh, and one of these whiskeys, one of these Westwards that we have to taste today um, is the Sautern. So there's a little bit of overlap there as well. Yeah, I've got... As soon as you mentioned it, I went ahead and started... I have my glasses set and these little plastic discs that I leave over top of them. So that way it keeps the smell down a little bit. Yeah. I, I, I sort of rotated my glasses at some point and lost track of which one is which. And I like, See, I don't really want to play the, the game of identifying. Because then I can write, you, but you can't read it. Yeah. That's a dry erase <laughs> yes. marker written on top. I use watch glasses. Uh, they're glass glass though. Um, and I yeah. just forgot today. And so See, I, rotated I, have, them. I have the glass glass ones, but I am notorious for knocking these things off. And the glass doesn't go super well, like the so glass top. It, it looks like the sourdough is actually the lightest of the three mm -hmm. in the bottle anyway, which I think means that the one I have in the stemmed glass is the sourdough one. That matches for me. Provided we have the exact same Pinot cask, but one would imagine. The oh, yeah, I think the, the Pinot cask is always pretty dark. Um, yeah. I don't think you even need the exact same Pinot cask for that. Um, and the other thing is that, uh, on, on my podcast, uh, one of my co-hosts is, um, I guess he doesn't call himself a sommelier, but he worked in wine before he got into the whiskey industry. He works at Delbach now. Um, but I, I really want to pick his brain on the, uh, you know, the, the sort of the wine angle on both wine and whiskey. Right. I, I think that's definitely coming. Uh, look out for that on our podcast there, there's a lot of people that make that transition from wine to whiskey or vice versa um but that's that's the guy and i can't remember his name but he's the one that wears the different hats yeah like he always has like a different hat on it on, on every stream right yep like i thoroughly enjoy the confidence <laughs> of a man who will just wear a hat period right i don't know if i, I know have what his sort hair of looks a, like <laughs> i have sort of a, 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 a misshapen large head and I always feel hats look ridiculous, but like every time I see a guy with a hat, I'm like, yeah, and it's not like a baseball hat. Baseball hats don't count, but like yeah. unique hats, I'm like, that's it. That's the, that is, yes, good job. I think, yeah, baseball caps are pretty much the limit for me, and I wear them to keep the light and water out of my eyes when I'm paddling. So uh, they're more of a practical purpose and not a, right. not a fashion sense thing. I uh, I tried wearing a fedora 
I think everybody realizes that's a mistake. <laughs> Not a whole lot of people can pull off a fedora. I looked at one online one time, and that's as far as I got before I was like, no, this is not it. But I, I, you may not, I know your, your knowledge on, on bourbon is more limited than anything else, but uh, the guy that owns Smoke Wagon um, named Aaron, he's always wearing a cowboy hat that has this big like turquoise buckle thing on the front of it. I'm envious of that. Like I can't, I can't pull off a hat. It's just not a thing. He hopped on a, I had a, had him on an episode. I'm like, man, he's like, just wear the hat. Who cares? I'm like, I just, it, I don't feel comfortable in it. I think that's the thing. If you feel comfortable with what you're wearing, then like nobody's going to feel like it doesn't work. But if you don't right. feel comfortable, then you don't feel comfortable. And that's all there is right. to it. So anyways, huge yeah. divergence. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's talk about big brands and American single malt. Yep. Um, obviously, the most notable example is the Jack Daniels uh, pretty soon after. So just for some background, uh, I assume that people haven't gone and read my article or writings about the uh, the TTB's uh, proposal. Uh, in July last year, the TTB proposed the definition for American single malt whiskey, which is pretty much everything that the American Single Malt Whiskey Commission wanted. Uh, and I think, if anything, it lacked nuance that whiskey nerds expect because it sort of lumped a few things together that maybe, or it didn't draw distinctions that we wish were drawn. Uh, but it did give everything in a, in a broad sense. It gave everything that the commission asked for. Mm-hmm. Uh, another cool thing about the, uh, the American single malt whiskey commission, by the way, is that you can see a list of who is making American single malt in alignment with those principles. Uh, so there's, you know, 200 plus distilleries that are making American single malt the way that the commission proposed. Um, and they're probably more who just haven't signed up for the list. Right. Um, I, I didn't see it on the website, but I think I heard through the grapevine. Uh, Wild Turkey was actually um, on the list of companies that signed up in alignment with the commission. And uh, my working theory on that is either Wild Turkey already put single malt into a barrel as an experiment or planned to do so. Or they just wanted to keep the finger on the pulse of like the regulatory workings. I don't, I don't know how they how they don't right because it, it feels like every major player is exploring American single malt right, uh, whether it be a few barrels hidden in a rickhouse somewhere or a full on product release like the Claremont Steep, which is just a terrible name, terrible name <laughs> altogether. Like Steep, like whatever. It's not but, hard to imagine that any bourbon maker would have the ability to make a single malt because all bourbon has malted barley in it. It's something yep. they're already doing. So it's actually not that big of a step. And uh, Jack Daniels being like the first, pretty much as soon as that that July 2022 proposal came out, like within months, Jack Daniels mm-hmm. had released their triple mash or at least had announced their triple mash, which was going to contain bonded whiskey, a blend of bonded whiskey from three different styles, which was the bourbon or the Tennessee whiskey, uh, the rye and the American single malt. Uh, Jack Daniels is bourbon. It's okay. You can say it here. I certainly, you know, I I think if you look, if you read the regulations, you'll find that everything Jack Daniels does fits perfectly into the definition of bourbon. There is nothing that legally precludes them from calling themselves a bourbon. They just choose not to. Yeah. I I don't think, uh, I don't think I've met anybody who's a whiskey nerd who has an issue with that particular point. There are, there are folks that get hung up on the fact that they have not asked for the legal definite for the, uh, 
legal labeling of it, so they are not. Mm-hmm. Right? Don't label them something they're not, which you know it, it is what it is. Yeah, being being a more specific thing. Um, that was one of my thoughts on the regulations. We'll get into um, about like what what do you call it? Texas American single malt whiskey, American Texas single malt whiskey. Like what like what do we do with that? Right. Because that's that's the way the rules are written. You have to have the exact phrase American single malt whiskey, mm-hmm. uh, which precludes the use of a of a region. Um, and that's uh, that's one of the things that I had to comment on. Maybe that's all there. Maybe that's all there is to say on it. Basically, I proposed if you say a more specific region, you can drop the American in favor of say Texas or Oregon or. So so okay, this 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 will this will dovetail in relatively nicely, right? So one of the one of the standards in there is it's made from 100% malted barley, right? Why is that not just a hundred percent a single malted grain? Yeah, that's a, it. Is a really core important question. I think uh, I I honestly think American drinkers are going to have a hard time uh, understanding what the definition of single malt is. I I, I think the etymology of single malt and mm-hmm. the regulatory background of American whiskey are a bit at odds in terms of going from one to understanding the other. You almost have to come from scotch to understand what single malt is. Well, so so I understand globally what single malt yeah. is, and I understand why scotch is the way it is, right? Because corn was not an option. Let's just, we'll, we'll, we'll not talk about rye altogether, but corn was not an option for Scotland and England when scotch was being made. And corn is a very, very North American crop, based off of, you know, kind of where it was grown, where it was, you know, where it kind of came into being, where it was um, brought forward. But if if we're calling it, you know, if we're not saying it's um, single malt barley, right? Like that's not what we're calling this thing. It is a single malt keeping with the strict naming of it. You're just saying it has to be 100% a single malted grain of some type. It opens up a whole other thing. You could have triticale, you could have... Um, wheat, you could have barley, you could have rye, you could have corn, you, any single grain, rice for that matter. If you can malt it, it could be a single grain. And for the United States specifically, right, because we're looking for an American version of this, why are we chasing the exact same standard that Scotch has when we have, we could have the freedom to play a little bit differently? Yeah, I, I think there's, there's a, there's a fair criticism there. For one thing, there's things we copied from the Scotch definition that don't necessarily seem like they have a place in American mm-hmm. regulations. And there's just as many things that we kind of left behind because it was obvious they wouldn't gel. Um, I think that it's it's a what you the question that you've asked, why does it have to be malted barley instead of malted rye or malted wheat or malted corn, which I think exists but is really hard to do. Mm-hmm. Um well, malt, malted rice is uh, is almost not a thing. Making rice whiskey almost requires a separate ingredient anyway. We can get into that. Um, but, like, let's spend some time talking about American single malt because that's what we actually promised. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a really key question I think everyone is going to ask, and I think the answer is unfortunately not simple. But it is helpful to mention that in the... Um, in the American whiskey regulations as they stand today, without the American single malt proposal, which hasn't been legislated until, which hasn't been like landed as a law yet, it's still in proposal uh, or still in consideration. Um, the regulations as they exist today 
do name malt whiskey, where malt is a shorthand for malted barley. There is also malt rye whiskey specifically called out in the mm -hmm. American regulations. And what those definitions mean are at least 51% malted barley in your mash bill gives you a malt whiskey. And like most other American whiskey has to be aged in new chart oak. Um, and same for if you were doing malted rye or rye malt, I think is what they call it in the regulations. A rye malt whiskey would be 51% malted rye. It's just that, that that term malt is a shorthand for malted barley in our regulations and in the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. So for whatever reason, the whole world has decided that that's a thing. Malt whiskey is malted barley based whiskey is a distinctive enough product and with a long enough history that malt whiskey is a way to refer to that. Uh, it's a really good question though. I, I think um, it's going to be most helpful for people to sort of see the global context of where American single malt is coming from. American single malt is kind of coming on the, almost on the tail end of a trend that uh, the whole world is making whiskey now in a style that was made famous by Scotland. Scotland has single malt scotch whiskey, which almost everybody has heard of, even if they didn't know what it meant, uh, right? Like long before I knew what a single malt was, I had heard the phrase single malt scotch whiskey. Um, I'd also heard the phrase single malt Japanese whiskey or Japanese single malt whiskey. So I sort of like knew there's a, there's a commonality, right? Uh, some people will call it like Japanese scotch because single malt and scotch are so uh, intertwined in sort of the history and the recognition these days. Uh, that people think of single malt and scotch as synonyms uh, and they'll refer to single malt from other countries as, you know, Japanese scotch or Australian scotch or American scotch. And scotch is actually an adjective meaning a product of Scotland. So if it's made in another country, you can't actually call it scotch. And that's more of a pedantry thing than anything. Um, it doesn't really, it doesn't help the teaching if you if you tell someone like, you know, you called my American single malt whiskey a scotch. It's not a scotch, <laughs> right? right? Like you end up, you end up being the, the, the pedantic uh, pretentious person in the room instead of helpful. Um, so yeah, the whole world, right? Like sort of started with Scotland and then like Japanese whiskey became really famous because of Yamazaki winning uh, a competition again, a single malt competition, a medal and a single malt something that beat out scotch whiskey. That it was a specific expression of Yamazaki really old, something in a sherry cask. I forget exactly how old it was. Um, like not the entire brand beats every brand in Scotland. It's just that everybody that was entered in that thing and every bottle that was there, it happened that the Japanese whiskey won, but that got them on the map. And everybody started thinking like, oh, countries other than Scotland can make single malt. Why don't I? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, Australia is making single malt and Israel's making single malt. And, you know, lo and behold, American distillers have been quietly making single malt. They just couldn't call it anything. Uh, other than maybe if they were using new charred oak, they could call it malt whiskey. And they just happen mm -hmm. to have a mash bill of 100% malted barley. Um, Westward is an example of that, actually. Um, or, like McCarthy's, the first American single malt, uh, they were using refill casks and making a whiskey that was very much almost identical to the style of scotch whiskey, peated, heavily peated scotch whiskey. Um, and they were just doing it because they liked that style of whiskey. Um, it turns out that when you use whiskey in most of the world, um, mostly they don't use the E, mm -hmm. but the term whiskey, most people are going to think you're talking about scotch or something in that style. 
it's only in the United States that the default interpretation of whiskey is bourbon. In some parts of the United States. I, I, w- I would challenge that's still not necessarily the case everywhere, but in some parts. Probably true. At least where I was, you know, if somebody said whiskey, whiskey and bourbon were almost interchangeable. Because I, th- I think, if I remember correctly, and I could be off, but like the number one selling whiskey brand in the United States is Jack Daniels, which is not bourbon, right? And so now you're just that's true. Like whiskey default at this point is really about just whiskey, right? That there's not a there's yeah. not a bourbon specific bourbon gets. I think in your in your in my circle that is absolutely true. When we talk about American whiskey, we talk about bourbon, but if you look at the global consumer, the North American consumer. Um, it's all just whiskey to them. Yeah. I'll say this though, uh, at least in the circles that I grew up in and in my family, um, sort of until single malt, uh, sort of entered the vocabulary and the style of products that people were interested in. Uh, most people sort of, even if they didn't think Jack Daniels was a bourbon and they'd mm-hmm. maybe been pedantically corrected, it's a Tennessee whiskey. It's not bourbon, right? You're, you're sort of in that phase of learning about whiskey. Uh, I think that most people viewed them as a, as products like bourbon and Tennessee whiskey were products that serve the same purpose. You make the same cocktails with them. You do the same mm-hmm. kind of shots with them. You know, the, you're drinking them pretty much the same way. And then you've got single malt where, you know, somebody bought, somebody went to Scotland and bought an $80 bottle and they only bring it out around Christmas, mm-hmm. right? The fancy drink. Um, and there's less expensive and less fancy scotches too. Um, but I think that's sort of how people think of it. It's like, there's, this is, this is whiskey bourbon tennessee whiskey that sort of thing that has this particular job and then you've got single malts one way or another that have this other kind of job and you usually call them like you would you would usually call them scotch until you have uh until you learn or somebody corrects you um and that sticks with you Mm -hmm. um yeah i guess uh in terms of the regulation right it's not law yet right why can't we say a single malt is any single type of malt right could be any grain that you malted that's a single malt i think the answer for that is from a, if you just look at the regulations in a vacuum and you don't consider the history and the the products that are actually being made in the world it's a really good question why can't we make the category more open like that um you know you might say like maybe in opposition to like what the rest of the world is doing we feel that if we have a malted barley single malt now we have to put barley on the label too to make that distinction we have mm-hmm. to start putting mash bills everywhere um, I think as soon as you zoom out of American regulations or you start thinking about what this means for labeling, um, this is probably the best answer to the question. Uh, if you make a category too open, you have to be you have to be more verbose on the labeling, and that tends to confuse customers. And TTB, you know, all the way back to the Bottled and Bond Act, they want to protect consumers and make sure the consumer knows what they're buying. Mm-hmm. Right. Didn't used to be under the TTB, but right. Like that regulatory responsibility has always been about consumer protection and clarity. The reason that they've basically been able to say like, Hey, let's make American single malt is look at these 200 something distilleries that are making whiskey in the style of Scotland. And there's no label that they can put on it that gives them credit for doing that work. Right. Uh, so, you know, they're having to work extra hard to to explain to customers what it is that they have and customers aren't drawing the connection that this style, this product from this consu- from this producer is the same style as this product from this other producer. Right. Uh, you know, McCarthy's uh, 
Man, I wish I had pulled that bottle out. I'm going to go pull the bottle out because there's a great turn of phrase. You know, it's always great broadcasting when you turn your back to the camera. Uh, and I say that as a person who has absolutely done that any number of times. So I'm just. You got to make sure that your shirt is long enough. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Make sure it didn't roll up while you were sitting in your office chair uh, squirming around. That's my, and, and one of my biggest problems that exists. And, and I'll, I'll, I want to I want to frame out that question was actually posed to me um, in one of the off-air portions of commentary that I was having with a North American producer who actually does make American single malt. Uh, that, they, they were concerned that it was unnecessarily restrictive and allowing for exploration. And, and we, we understand the need to differentiate between malt whiskey and what American single malt is going to be because it is more artful than the standard definition of a malt whiskey but allowing at least more latitude for people to be creative in what they're doing, right? Because the, the process stays the same. The quality can stay the same. The thing that changes is the grain that's represented in the American single malt. And at that point, you know, their, their question was really hinging around like, okay, if, if this is what it is, why are we just not calling it single malt in the United States at that point, right? And giving it the American nomenclature like it's something uniquely different. So go on back to the McCarthy thing, but that's the sort of the context. Yeah, uh, I want to talk more about what makes the style the style. I think that's important for people to know mm -hmm. if you're like, you know, why should I be interested in single malt? Um, or why? Yeah, I mean, like, let's just let's just say that. Why should you be interested in single malt? And then we can take it a step further. Why should you be interested in American single malt? Um, so prior to there being a definition of American single malt, uh, well, usually what you'll see is uh, basically labeling guidelines say you can't put whiskey on the same line in the same font as a designation of what type of whiskey it is, unless it is a legal category and you meet that definition. Mm -hmm. So what happens with American single malt whiskey today is most often you'll get something like this. Um, hopefully that shows mm -hmm. up well on the stream, uh, where it says a Martha, um, uh, bleh, I'm reading it backwards. <laughs> McCarthy's Oregon single malt. And then way down the, way down the label, we have a different size and different color and different font. And there's words in between. And it finally says whiskey. Uh -huh. As far as the TTB is concerned, this bottle contains whiskey. Doesn't contain any specific type of whiskey. For that, you are trusting what's written on the label, which they also approve. Right. But you're trusting the producer to explain to you what is in this bottle because all this is is whiskey. It doesn't fit into any more specific category as far as the TDP is concerned. And so what this says in total, McCarthy's Oregon Single Malt, single barrel cask strength whiskey distilled from fermented mash of peat malted Scottish barley, barrel aged a minimum of three years. That is what this bottle is. And they had mm -hmm. to say all of that because there's no legal definition that says Oregon single malt whiskey means these things. Right. Um, and on top of that, they did manage to fit in like, yes, they had this bar. They got this barley from Scotland. The, the, the barley was peat malted in Scotland. Um, it was aged a minimum of three years, which is the requirement for scotch in Scotland. Um, you know, the first American single malt was because Steve McCarthy went to Scotland and fell in love with, if I'm not mistaken, Lafroig. Um, and wanted to make that. He said, you know, I, I am a craft distiller. Why don't I make that style of thing? Uh, and so that's what he did. And that was the first American single malt. Uh, leaving aside, like, let's innovate on the category. You know, what you have here, you could almost argue 
my favorite whiskey is spiritually speaking a scotch it just happens mm-hmm. to be made in america right um it meets all the standards of it in it meets all yes, the standards if, if, aside if, from its geography yes if this had been made aged and bottled in scotland it could be called a scotch mm-hmm. it is it is 100 percent all of those things not all of american single malt whiskey is or will be because the regulations are sort of by necessity to fit into the other styles of american spirits had to be different more lenient more strict uh both um so yeah that that gets into an interesting um there's a corner of the rules which makes the single malt definition really frustrating we have malt whiskey we have american malt whiskey we have american straight malt whiskey put any state that you want Mm -hmm. um all that says is it has to be at least 51% barley. So if you made something, if you put single, right, if you put, you know, Oregon single and then you did some other funny thing and you moved malt down and you said malt whiskey, well, now this would have to be aged in new oak and you also don't guarantee it's 100% malted barley. Uh, and that's significant because there's just a long standing tradition of making whiskey from 100% malted barley. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what are you going to do with that? Uh, we have this sort of thing where we're saying, okay, let's relax the cask type because, um, so let's explain what single malt is as a style. So single malt says 100% malted barley. We've beaten that point to death. It doesn't give any restriction on the type of cask other than it is uh, oak. In some countries, just wood. Uh, in Australia, for example, it just has to be a wooden cask. It doesn't have to be oak. Um, that's a fun bit of trivia. Most countries do say oak though. Um For most countries, it has to be aged a minimum of three years. There's no minimum age requirement in the United States unless you put straight on the label, in which case Mm -hmm. the minimum age is two years. Uh, I'm forgetting, I'm forgetting my regulations now, but I forget if it's, uh, if it's less than four years old, but more than two, you can call it straight, but you have to see how old it is. If it's less than two years old, you can't call it straight whiskey. Mm -hmm. There's other things about additives and, and blending and putting from different states and all that sort of stuff. It's minutiae in the law. Um, yeah. I think if it's straight and it's under four years, you have to say how many years it is. But if it's over four years after straight, you don't have to put the age statement on it. Is that right? And, yeah, I think that's it. I think it's under four years. You have to give an age. Uh, it's and it, none of this really matters to the consumer. I think, um, I mean, these days, the idea that you're getting something that isn't quite whiskey is like, so is so is a problem that's so long in the past that people have forgotten. But my question is, is it though? Because because what you're talking about is TTB, right? Yeah. And this is this is going to be a rabbit hole, and and I'm I'm fine with that. TTB is validating the label. Are they validating that what goes in the bottle is actually what's on the label? Oh man, I have questions. That's a, it's it's a. There's a lot of things in the world where we just have to trust. See, the thing is that we can't. And I, and, and I have an article that I'll share with you later on that, that, that a friend of mine wrote around a very specific brand and a labeling issue that happened this year. Very, very specific labeling issue that happened this year. I may have that, heard of this. Huh, that, that sort of obscures the standards of identity of a particular whiskey that is on the shelf. It got rectified, but only because, well, in my mind, only because 
the person who wrote the article did so before it actually hit market. And so new labels were miraculously printed up and stuck on these bottles or whatever, but Hmm. there was nothing preventing that from happening. So I'm kind of bringing this all back around is that what is the consequence that they don't, we largely trust. And, and, and I think with most of our craft distillers, they've got a lot more on the line than, than some of the major folks do. So I think we probably can, but yeah, let's put it this way. Mislabeling your product is intentionally or unintentionally breaking the law. There are consequences for breaking the law and intent matters. Uh, And to some extent it comes down to how much money can you afford to fight if you get caught doing something intentionally or unintentionally that is against the law. Mm -hmm. Uh, And how much can you, how much can you stake your reputation on doing something wrong. So I, I think the law exists and the, uh, albeit sporadic enforcement of the law serves to keep everyone at least a little more honest, but yeah, you I mean, can't hundred percent trust. I mean, uh, I, I work in tech, I'm an engineer in tech and, <laughs> uh, I'm constantly thinking about, you know, what, what can you trust and what can't you trust or what assumptions are being violated or how can the system be, be abused by someone who wants to get your personal information out of a product or whatever, right? Like trust is, uh, is a big problem. And, uh, most of the time, the best answer that we have for anything is it's better to trust with the risk of being burnt than to not mm-hmm. trust and have no convenience or enjoyment in your life. Uh, there's a, I don't, you know, I'm a nerd across all dimensions. Um, if if you want to uh, have uh, a fun, maybe depressing, disturbing read, um, there's a there's a particular person who is very famous in the. I don't I don't want to necessarily give extra um, extra like name cred to this person, but probably everybody's heard of Richard Stallman. Mm-hmm. Um, He's a uh, big important in like the, the Linux and GNU and like all this sort of open source stuff. And uh, he's got a website. Um, and on that website, it's like, it's, it looks like a nineties website because it basically is right. He uses no, you know, in his own personal life, right. He's got these whole manifestos about like, you know, I don't use a regular web browser. I've got a bot that goes to a website and emails me the text content of the website. If it's something that I really want to read and all mm-hmm. other sorts of ridiculous, ludicrous things that are like, this is, this is a technology leader from decades ago that to this day is almost a Luddite when it comes to certain forms of technology. And there's something behind that. Like anytime we can, every, every time we give ourselves a little extra convenience, you end up opening the door to some kind of an attack or mm-hmm. uh, or a data leak, or you know, you're being fingerprinted by Google so that when you go to Facebook, they know that you're the same person, even if you're using a different login. Like, you could be terrified of these things, or you could just accept that this is the way things are, and that there are people like me who are trying to make it better with our day jobs, mm-hmm. and that's pretty much all we could do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like we're, I mean, we we regularly worry about is somebody looking at us. Uh, through a satellite but carry around uh, homing beacons in our pockets daily right like the, I, I i get that it's um, never been easier to track us never i mean this is absolutely never unless somebody's carrying around a faraday uh, pouch in their pocket and putting their phone inside of it and then it completely defeats the purpose of having it uh, that thought has crossed my mind though about having I, one or I, I really like 
no about about you know putting some kind of faraday cage around my telecom devices because you know every once in a while something has something in the tech news happens and you go maybe that tinfoil hat looks a little better than it used to it's starting to look a little bit more shiny and a little less wrinkled like it's yeah. looking a little a little, a little more like a a smart man's play yeah um it's really refreshing to go like go on a multi-day hike where there's no cell service. Like you start to ask the question, like if I got into trouble, how would I get rescued? Right? Like the mm -hmm. answer is ignoring that fear. It's a beautiful, like, it's so beautiful to the, just the same way someone was rescued in 1985. Yeah. Like it's going to have, maybe they were, maybe they weren't. We don't that's, carry that's... satellite phones on these kinds of trips usually though. And that would be, that would be the thing, right? The, the, mm -hmm. uh, if you need it, you can use it. You'll find a way to communicate. But if you just go out there with the, the technology of these days, the smartphones that assumes you're within a certain distance of a cell tower and you go a mile plus up into the sky and 50 miles away from civilization. Uh, yeah, you're not you're not going to get a phone call out. Sorry. There's no matter how hard you try, no matter how high you hold that phone up, you're just not going to be able to get into contact with anybody. So you better be able to get yourself out of there or you're going to wait for another hiker to come along. <laughs> So I don't know if you're watching the chat at all, but oh, I think uh, I think one, I think one of your one of your friends is here is an indicate has indicated that you can buy pre-made Faraday bags, probably on Amazon at this point. Um, but there should be there may be a little section on the right hand side of Streamyard that shows you the ability to open up comments. Oh man, I. Oh, wow. Okay. So huh, StreamYard actually does have a comments tab and I completely have yeah. just been ignoring it the whole time. Probably. No, no, no. There's no, there's not really a reason to other than I know this person is directly attached to you and um, added in a comment that didn't really matter to the conversation. Yeah. It's, got a few it's, fans uh, here. I haven't I haven't been good at reading chat on my own podcast. I think it's more distracting than helpful in terms of covering content. <laughs> it it, it but usually thank you all for is. tuning in. I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. Holy I actually God. saw that uh, Caitlin Bartlemay is listening in and I really yeah, appreciate she, that. Yeah, she, she's the one that indicated that you can buy pre made Faraday bags. Like we're gonna have a chat about that this Friday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um all so right, I'm going to turn that off again so that I don't uh, get distracted. How, how do we get back to American single malt from uh, Faraday bags? I, I think we just, we just do a hard segue, <laughs> hard segue, hard segue. Um, Here, let's, uh, let's taste these whiskeys that we poured. That's, a you know, I've segue. already, I've already drank through the Pinot and the sourdough at this point, just by casually sipping. Now I say drank through, like I had a bunch of it. I had like, you know, I think I've got like yeah. three quarters, three quarters of an ounce pours. Yeah, I guess uh, for for the sake of your audience, I didn't really uh, introduce myself uh, in terms of my like why my name is what my name is. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, I go by Demi Taste around the internet, and uh, a big reason for that is that uh, I've always had usernames that started with Demi, going back to when I was a teenager. Um, I was Demi Reticent for a while uh, because I thought it sounded cool. I was uh, Demi Meta when Demi Reticent was too long, and that was my gamer tag for a while. When I joined Discord and I was in the whiskey discords, I named myself Demi Malt. Um, and then, uh, and then I realized that, uh, if I wanted to make like any kind of a social media following, it'd be cool to have like kind of a punny name. So mm -hmm. I, uh, since I was getting into coffee at that time, uh, there's, a, there's this tiny espresso cup. It's like a two or three ounce cup about this big that has a little handle on it. Um, they call it Demitas. 
And I said, oh, well, you know, I'm sort of famous around the internet for pouring a half ounce at a time or like less, like whenever I post a picture review, I usually have a tiny amount of whiskey in my glass because I'm not, I'm not trying to like show off with two ounces in my glass. Uh, I think a half ounce looks fine. All right, this, this is the amount that I prefer to drink. And so uh, right. tiny tastes like Demi means like partial. Um, so like uh, taking the Demi tasks and the concept that I do small pours together um, and calling myself Demi tastes, it seemed to fit. So why did you adopt Demi to begin with? Is this like Demi God? Is this like, what, what, what was the... No, I, I suppose it's a little unfortunate because of uh, the associations. Like you've got the, you've got women are named Demi, like Demi Lovato, and and uh, so like I think people who uh, I'm not trying to appear as a woman on the internet, but I think that there there may have been one or two people who thought no, I was that really at one just point going with demigod. I was like, oh, you consider yourself a demigod? That's fine. Uh, yeah, there's also that unfortunate connotation. Uh, yeah, I think it was. Uh, I actually um, I had a friend who uh, I'm sure that this screen name has been long retired, but like on AOL Instant Messenger, I had a, fr a friend whose name was Rogue Ascetic. And I thought that was a cool, like just put two cool words together. And like, I thought that was the coolest <laughs> thing because it wasn't like everybody's putting like X's and Z's all over the place and a weird capitalization. I mean, some, this guy's right. just like, no, I'm going to be two words and it's going to be like a normal name. And I, I thought that was cool. I wanted to follow that. And like, I was just kind of, I was a swimmer at the time. So I was in the middle of doing a, a 30 minute, like, um, I actually remember this. We called it a T30. It was swim for 30 minutes and see how far you can go. And this was like a, like a fitness test that we did once a year, mm -hmm. basically. Um, and so like, I was in the middle of that and they had thrown like the 15 minute, like they, they have these medicine balls that, that you have in the gym. Mm -hmm. They threw this 15 minute medicine ball in the pool. Like you're halfway done just so you know, right? Like, but you're just going to keep swimming anyway. And I remember that going in and like sometime after that, I was just like, I don't know. I just suddenly had a clue. I, I felt like Demi Reticent was a cool name. And I just went with that. It just like, it stuck. Um, and that had the unfortunate, um, like the abbreviation of that was DR. So uh, some friends who started calling me doctor. <laughs> So, By the way, I don't have a PhD. I'm not a doctor. I don't want to take yet. any credit for that. Is that, is, I don't, is that a, I have, a future plan? I, no, no aspirations? No aspirations to get a PhD. I did academics for six years and burnt out on it. And, uh, you know, a master's is good enough for me. Yeah. I, I would, in, 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 in the realm that you work in, I don't know that a PhD largely helps significantly. The master's didn't help at all. It got me, got me no benefit in terms of paycheck or job opportunities or anything. Like, you know, nobody cares. I, I, I did my MBA as a vanity project entirely. And, and that's a story for a whole other day. It was just a really, really expensive, you know, self-help situation. Um, I think you told that story on another one of your podcasts. Oh, you know, so I've talked about it your a listeners, bunch Hey, of go listen to those old episodes and you'll find yeah, out. That I've, 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 I've talked about it several, several times. Lots of people go to college for 10 years. Yeah, we've been, doctors. we, we sort of, uh, we, we, uh, we, um, I guess made contact on Instagram something like three weeks ago and then probably mm -hmm. immediately started researching each other. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, and like you were saying on another podcast, uh, it feels like stalking, except if you slap a podcast on it, everything is fine. Yeah. It's, it's okay. Like you can literally like dig through the, to the bottom of someone's LinkedIn, if they give you all their information and find, you know, lots of stuff. You know, I, I did that with one of the one of the distillers I was, I was talking to. And he was like, man, you really went back there. Like, yeah. I mean, I don't want to ask the same questions everybody else is asking. So you got to find the kind of the, the deep cuts. Um, yeah. Speaking of the deep cuts, uh, if you want to move on from American single mall now, I have more to say, but we can move on. I don't um, know. I can talk about it for, for a long time, but so this medicine ball, 
that they were throwing at you? They, were they throwing it at you in the pool? Like, is that somebody's oh, no, no. job? Uh, so, is it like a coach's job? Yeah. So the coach, basically, we had no way. Like, you, you've got your goggles on, but you're looking yeah. at the bottom of the pool, basically, right? And you so don't hear swimming. anything because your ears are underwater, right? Yeah, you're swimming for 30 minutes. You've got no way of hearing or seeing anything. Uh, you're not going to stop to look at the clock because you got to clear your eyes and look, and mm-hmm. you're just wasting time that you could be swimming, right? So every five minutes, they would drop a medicine ball of a different color into the pool. And the pool that we were swimming in at the time angled towards the middle. So mm-hmm. they would just drop the medicine ball in on the side and it would roll down towards the middle and everybody would see it. Yeah, no, I was super excited. It wasn't like, like somebody some was coach just like hucking a ball at you. The pool. Yeah, it was, like it just, was it's way part more of the part of the, the fear of the moment is adding that. This is why I would be a terrible coach, because that's the thing that I'd be like, yeah, no, we're doing that. We're <laughs> good luck. I hope you can dodge. It's a part of the swimming <laughs> test that exists. Yeah, if you can dodge a medicine ball, it would hurt. I mean, they're like five pounds or something. Uh, you can absolutely, but I mean, like yeah. it's going to be cushioned a little bit because you're just going to get pushed down in the water. It's not like you know throwing it at you and bouncing you off a wall or anything like that. Yeah, but imagine you're like imagine you get hit with a giant flying five pound object with some velocity, and you're in the middle of uh you're tired and whatever, and just like all of a sudden you just got hit by something. You would freak out, probably swallow some water. I, I have two children. That's happened to me. Like it's happened to me a number of times, <laughs> anywhere from a five to 25 pound object randomly hitting you when you're tired. It's a yeah, different kind of tired. It's not like physical exhaustion. It's more like mental exhaustion. Like why, why? You know? Competitive swimming is probably another niche that this audience probably has no overlap with. But uh, I think anybody who's been a swimmer for enough hours mm-hmm. will uh, totally understand that for absolutely no reason at all, you will suddenly swallow, you'll suddenly inhale water and spend the next five minutes coughing and trying to recover, hanging onto the lane lines, hanging onto the side of the pool, getting out, you know, getting on all fours and just like coughing your lungs out until, mm-hmm. until it's clear. And you feel like such an idiot, but it happens to everybody, right? I probably yeah. in, in 11 years of competitive swimming, uh, six, five or six days a week, two hours a day, you know, go add up how many, uh, how many hours of swimming that was like everything has happened to me a dozen times. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have, I have scars on my hands from hitting the lane ropes that I can still see. Like, I guess I, I feel like you could probably look at a swimmer's hands and everybody's had this, especially if you've ever swam butterfly because mm-hmm. the lane is only like eight feet wide. And if you're not directly down the center, which you're not going to be right. if you're circle swimming, you've got a whole bunch of people in the lane and you've got to pass each other. You're not going to be directly down the center of the lane. And if you don't take a perfect stroke, your your hands are going to scrape on you're those there. lane lines. Yeah. And, yeah. Then, and then you get bloody knuckles and that's that's just part of swimming. American single wall. Yeah. There's nowhere to go from there. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Like here, here's the hardship. Like, Why are there not more distillers attempting to use American peat? That is a great question. I would love to know the answer to that. Um, I wanted to check my facts before I put this out there, but I once talked with Joe O'Sullivan about whether he was going to try to use American peat. And I believe the answer at the time was a maybe. And I don't remember if he was saying that he was going to use the same Skagit Valley peat that Westland and Copperworks have used, mm-hmm. or if there was something closer to uh, like the Willamette River Valley or something like that uh, in Oregon that they might be able to use. Um, maybe Caitlin can uh, elucidate in chat if there's any plans. Yeah. 
And that, I mean, that's one that I'm keeping around forever because I, I didn't know that Pete in the U.S. was a thing until maybe like two years ago, right? Yeah. Because I started so exploring. I can speak to that. It turns out there's a lot of peat in the United States. Yeah. And like in most of the world, it's mostly used for gardening. It's a, it's a very nutrient-rich, basically, soil uh, that that is used. Uh, you've probably seen gardening peat moss in uh, your Lowe's yeah. or Home Depot garden center. No, I, like, I distinctly remember as a child being used as manual labor because that's what you do. You have kids for manual labor. And, that's and right. like, there was a Farm lot tradition. of like, spreading peat moss as a child. But it didn't ever connect. And even after I learned about Scottish peat, right? Like I just assumed peat and peat moss were two different things, right? Yeah. Take it, uh, you, There's a connection to draw. I, I think right. peat moss may be slightly less decomposed than like peat that they end up using. Uh, yeah. for, for, for one thing, um, we like to think, I think in, in Scotch whiskey, we like to think of peat as being like it's made, it's bricks that you burn in a kiln, right? you know bricks what is it coal is it wood like what is it no it turns out it's basically mud yep. um that they dried out and cut and then uh like yes it's brick shaped now but you could pull it apart and it has sort of a fibrous like there's plant matter in there mm-hmm. um now and in, it's more uh, widespread it, across the united states than i thought as well like that was the other yeah. thing that like you know because it, it was i think 2000 it was 21 2021 when i did my first episode on american single malt right because that was the american single malt commission and talking about what they were working on and this is the sad state of affairs is that like at that point in 2021 it was like september october of 2021 like we think we're gonna have you know a, a, an open comment period within the next three months yeah, that that got delayed a whole Which, bunch. Yeah, no joke. Because right? <laughs> like, I was like super excited. I was like, sweet. And then I started digging into it and I look in and like, oh, there's peat in the United States. Not a ton of people are using it. Um, maybe it's because we don't have the traditional um, utilization of it. So harvesting isn't what it is everywhere else in the world. And then I got in a, you know, one of those like, YouTube rabbit holes of watching peat being harvested. Like, yeah. oh, th- this is how this is actually yeah. done. Like, this is super interesting. Yeah, I think uh, there's, like as I people. understand it, there's a few reasons. Um, mm-hmm. I I think that my interview with Jason Parker at Copperworks had some on this, although I haven't published that yet. And deepest apologies for that. I've been very busy. Uh, it happens. Um, and also, you know, we can talk about, we'll talk about that a little bit later when we talk about podcasting and, and, and your path mm-hmm. through and my path through. Um, yeah. Uh, American Pete, Pete throughout the world. Um, yes, it's used for gardening. You don't have to get into like such a, you don't have to worry about, can it burn a certain way or does it have the right moisture or does it have the right plants in it? Or does it taste good? Um, and I think that's the biggest thing when it comes to whiskey production, uh, aside from if you can get past the regulatory, a lot of peat bogs in the United States, I think are actually protect protected. Mm-hmm. They're in, they're in like wetland Wetlands. designated areas that you can't disturb or they're in national parks or, whatever so first of all you got to find a peat bog that you can actually harvest from and clearly there's a lot of those because they're using it for gardening purposes um the next thing is uh once you can get past the regulations of of you know find a peat bog that you can use get past some sort of regulations now choose from your peat bogs that you have access to uh how are you going to figure out if it tastes good in whiskey and like you can learn a lot from new make actually so like if you're a whiskey Mm -hmm. maker uh, you could probably run pretty quickly some experiments with peat and figure out 
how is this peat going to come across in this barley? There may even be a peat and barley combination that, that, that there's something there. Um, but you've got to figure out whether it tastes good. And in order to do that, you really need some time to develop it. And so um, Westland talks about developing with Skagit Valley malting, the Skagit Valley peat that they're using now in, um, I believe what they said is all of their peated whiskey is going to go to Skagit Valley peat, which is kind of cool because they've gone mm -hmm. from Scottish peat to developing peated, uh, to developing a peat bog to releasing um, the Solum, which just released this year. Um, the Solemn is the, is the Skagit Valley peated whiskey, uh, to saying that they're dedicating, you know, they're not laying down any new peated whiskey that isn't Skagit Valley peat. Uh, or if, if that's not true yet, it's going to be true soon. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's, it's cool to see that kind of development happening. And that took a lot of work. It took it, not only did they have to find the peat bog, they had to find the right corner of the peat bog that had a good flavor when they tested it. Um, so I think probably... It's just a lot of work, mm -hmm. right? If you're, if you're a whiskey producer, so I think like an engineer, um, if I was, if I was a whiskey producer, if I was a new whiskey producer, I was trying to build a product and I wanted to figure out if there's a market for that product, right? Is there a market for American peated whiskey? There's a small market, but again, a lot of American whiskey drinkers are bourbon drinkers and, and like peated bourbon is an interesting experiment uh that not a whole lot of uh not a whole lot of bourbon makers are doing uh there's notably the the buffalo trace peated bourbon for example which was uh like small sample bottles only if i'm not mistaken mm -hmm. um there's been a couple of other peated bourbons king's county yeah he's right over here it is a unique flavor i might hit you up for a sample of that actually because yeah, I, I haven't gotten a chance to try it yet um yeah and and i think uh as far as bourbon drinkers are concerned uh peated bourbon is uh like oh this is really smoky like this this is kind of a strange new thing and and uh an isla scotch drinker is going to be like what do you mean peated bourbon it doesn't taste like smoke at all there's so different levels of of smoke and then mm -hmm. there's another problem which is uh scotland has a lot of practice peating their barley and they figured out how to get those really high um peat levels which is a non-trivial thing to do um and so uh if you've got an american malting house doing peated whiskey for the first time, they're trying to figure out how do we actually make the barley um, get enough peat stuck to it, basically, that it's going to come through in the finished product that we're making. Um, mm -hmm. Presumably, you're going to be using a pot still. I think we can eliminate that variable or some kind of hybrid still that has, you know, a lot of those flavors come through, not a column still, because you'd lose... <laughs> You work that hard to make your peated barley and then and then throw away as Strip much it all as you can. You're absolutely stripping it all out. Like yeah. It, you know, like you, you're you using a still that is made for creating grain whiskey. Um, yeah. Or so, grain so point spirit, being, neutral grain spirit at that point. If you were developing a peated American whiskey product and you knew that you could get peated malt from Scotland and, you know, environmental concerns aside, let's say it doesn't cost that much to get the peated malt to the United States as opposed to the whole cost of R&D and the wait time and all that sort of stuff. I don't know about you, but if I was an American single malt maker, I would be choosing the Scottish malt at least to get started. Mm -hmm. And then seeing, I personally am super intrigued by the idea of American peat. I want to see more of it. I think it's going to take some time. I think mm -hmm. Westland has done the favor to everybody of proving it's possible. Uh, I think so we're going to see a lot more of it. I'll, I'll send you a, a couple more, and I think I may have like one ounce or half an ounce. Um, 
of a couple of samples of the Whiskey Witch, right? So Whiskey Witch is Spirits of French Lick. Spirits of French Lick. Um, they did a, a wheat mash with Indiana peat. Indiana has peat bogs, apparently. Um, and so they, they have peated theirs. The first one that I had, it was distinctly peated. Not, 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 like, not like scotch peated, but it was like, you're like, okay, there, there's peat here. The second one just tasted a little bit smoky. You know, like it, it, it was maybe even milder than your, your Cole Keegan's or your Del Box, you know. Yeah, uh, I, I actually have behind me, because I figured this question would come up, I have the Solemn, and I also have Copperworks 043, which is their their peated whiskey from the same peat bog, same malting house as, as Westland's was. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, both of them come across to me as uh, faint, like, forest uh, and sort of like campfire. Mm-hmm. as a, Like, it's it's more earthy than smoky. It's not the medicinal like seaweed iodine that you get from an isla peat it's a very different character and it's much more subtle than i expected to be honest Mm -hmm. i wonder if that's because you know most of the peat bogs i mean there's a salinity that's in the peat bogs in ireland and scotland but it's largely fresh water that are feeding the peat bogs here so maybe that's part of your difference at this point right because the 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 flora of it all is going to be distinctly unique um but you know you you make it you make a really good point there that just because it's peat doesn't mean it's going to smoke well, right? Uh, in the same way that just because you can capture yeast doesn't mean it's going to create good flavors. Sometimes it's going to taste terrible. Um, a lot of folks learned that during the pandemic as they were trying to make sourdough in their homes and they're wild capturing yeast out of their kitchen and they get some yeast off of an apple that they bought from the store that just doesn't make good bread. Uh, yeah, speaking of sourdough, Speaking of sourdough, you like that transition that I built in there? Yeah. So how did you think of the sourdough whiskey? You just got it today. I had a chance to try it a few days ago. Yeah. So it, I haven't had anything from Westward that I've disliked. That sort of sounds like I'm leading into like, oh, but this is the one. Um, (laughs) It's good bordering great but i don't know that it's distinctly unique like the like what what am i get what am i supposed to get out of this that i don't get out of a standard westward or westward cask strength at this point yeah i i think i i agree with you i feel the 2020 sourdough was more distinctive Mm -hmm. uh i think um in terms of recent releases actually the sautern was one of the better ones Mm mm-hmm um, and also the two malts, which is a great re-segue back into American single malt. Mm-hmm. When I went to my uh, Westward tour a year ago, uh, and I just, I went on the tour, there was a couple of other people who were not uh, whiskey bloggers. They they wrote me in as a whiskey blogger, um, which mm-hmm. I think is funny. Like you show up at a distillery having sent somebody an email um, and like you just send them your links and then they'll variously decide, oh, you're an influencer or you're a blogger or you're a you know reviewer or whatever. And the various labels that they assign to you are kind of funny because like I don't necessarily think of myself as any of those things. Um, or maybe like I I wouldn't call myself an influencer. I, I like I said, I'm not very good at social media. I'm I'm also not phoning it in. I feel like I'm working too hard and not achieving uh what I want to achieve with it. Uh 
<laughs> so why wouldn't you call yourself an influencer? Uh, well, for one thing, uh, I don't know to the extent that I'm influencing uh, opinions. Uh, I think I'm putting wait, wait, information you, you, you out have, into the world. You have actually commented directly. There's at least one person that has made multiple purchases off of your recommendation. That's true. So I think by as, definition, as, that as makes long you as, an influencer. It may not I be guess, a huge audience. I guess. I, that just feels awkward to say. I, I don't like to think it's, of myself that way because like, I'm not, I'm not begging for product endorsements and I'm not trying to get people to buy things. I'm trying to put information out into the world. So like if I had to give myself you're trying to help label, people make informed decisions on whether they should buy something or not, but that doesn't right. immediately preclude you preclude you from being an influencer. And I, cause I had this discussion with an actual influencer like, and I say actual influencer, you know, like this is a person. <laughs> so so you a, agree with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, for like, he's talking to me about, oh, you're an influencer. I'm like, no, I'm not. I've, you know, got X number of followers and, you know, I just kind of say what I say. And he was like, you know, it, it, that's not the point of it all is like, you're putting a perspective out there that someone either agrees with or doesn't agree with. But if they agree with you and they trust you, then they may make a, make a purchase. They may make a decision. They may do something. And what I think that you'll find as you grow sort of your platform and, and what you're trying to do that as you grow, the number of people that listen to you stays the same, but num the number of people that are following you grows. Right. And so your influence audience still stays relatively small. And so you've got a influencer who has 50,000 followers. There's probably 50 that are making actual purchase decisions. Everyone else is just consuming content, and moving on. Like that's largely what social media is at this point. And so for a lot of brands, and I think some smaller brands are recognizing this, is that it's not necessary to go out and find the guy with 100,000 followers and, and get them to talk about your whiskey. It's find the guy who has regular people who are commenting, who are engaging, who are making purchase decisions based off of it. And so by that definition, and it, and it feels icky, like you don't want to call yourself an influencer, like that sounds gross, right? Yeah, and I, I just, definitely don't want to call to myself helper. an expert. Because I am a student, right? I'm still learning all of this stuff, and I'm just putting out. I mean, you're I an learned. expert to somebody, though. Right? You're measuring it wrong, right? Because there's a large quantity of people below you that would consider yeah. you at expert level, and there's a smaller quantity of people above you that would say you're not. Yeah, I think uh, the word expert in isolation is the problem. Yeah, I think um, I I agree with your take on that. I think uh, in in the context of you know, um, I don't entirely hate the fact that. Uh, certain people have called me like a like the foremost community expert on American single malt as far as they know mm -hmm. which is a highly qualified statement but I love that mm -hmm. because that feels authentic to me right like that's a compliment right. that I can accept if somebody were to call me an American single malt expert I'd say no go talk to Joseph O'Sullivan go talk to Caitlin Bartlemy go talk to mm -hmm. Jason Parker go talk to um Jared Hempstead Right. Go talk to the producers who have built their careers and their brands around making this stuff. They know more than I do, even if they're focused on just that one brand. Right. I want so to three know... people. You, you've influenced three people to make purchase decisions regularly. And, and I'm saying that because <laughs> somebody uh, in the comments said it. the comment three section people. has indicated it's been at least three. Um, yeah, I know that's that's the, the, that's a distinct aside. But um, calling yourself an expert feels weird. It's always going to calling yourself an influencer is going to feel weird. Um, and, and, and I say all of these things like, oh, no, you're definitely an expert. You know, when 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 coworkers find out like this is the hobby of mine, they're like, oh, there's the whiskey expert. I'm like, nah, I just like the things that I like. Yeah. 
you can be the expert in the room. I th I think there's like there's nuance, right? As long as people don't think that you're saying that you are the foremost, that you are the superlative, right? Uh, I don't think that you are. People the don't make absolute apex. statements like that. I shouldn't say that. People make absolute statements like that all the time. <laughs> the the kinds of reasonable people. person that there I like to go. hang out reasonable with. Yeah, people reasonable don't people don't make. Exactly. Yeah, reasonable people don't make absolute statements about that. I'm the best at everything, right? I've been playing music for 22 years, and I am there. There are few people in the music groups that I'm in that I would say are, you know below me right i i think that i'm bottom of the barrel right so like, but what happens whenever someone that you say is an expert says you're an expert the the universe implodes but like in the comments <laughs> right here like caitlin literally says i w you an expert right so you threw oh, no. it to her and she threw it right back to you it was like nah uh, you know what? I'm I in, instead of being pithy, and I'm not going to reject the compliment because I really appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, I am just gonna say, I think it is possible for people to be experts in different ways about different things, and mm -hmm. surrounding yourself with experts in things that are different from what they think you're an expert in is the way to, you know, build uh a you know build a better you, enhance your learning, whatever buzzwords that you want to throw out right like mm -hmm. it, it, it just the richness of life comes from the diversity of other people okay so this is a this is maybe a relatively easy transition at this point and so how long have you you've you've been you know podcasting and 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 you've been writing reviews for a long time how long have you been doing this podcasting thing like you know when did this begin uh yeah the podcasting thing uh we've been doing it i believe we've done uh I believe it's been four months. Our first podcast was uh, actually on 420, which I remember because everyone remembers that number. Um, and that was a complete coincidence. Um, but it is funny. Um, and what we did was uh, we just kind of we had a whole bunch of ideas that we'd been kind of I have a private discord with uh, a, a collection of people whose opinions I respect and who were interested in being part of planning Um a podcast actually wasn't the first thing that we were trying to do. Um, I, when, when the American single malt, uh, when the TTB, um, the notice of proposed rulemaking for, uh, the American single malt, when the TTB published their proposal, I happened to be traveling in Texas to visit family. I immediately said, I have to talk to Jared Hempstead. So I sent Balconis an email and I said, you know, I am a whiskey reviewer. I, you know, go go look. Mm -hmm. At that point, I'd done my American single malt advent. So I had 27 solid reviews um, all in one place that people could go look at. And I said, here, I'm a reviewer. Uh, this, this is like my entire resume of like, these are my thoughts about American single malt. I've reviewed, you know, McCarthy's and Balconis and, Popper, and Copperworks and a few others. Um, I want to talk to you about the you know, the proposal as written, because I already knew what the American Single Malt Whiskey Commission wanted. And I read the I read the proposal and I said, that matches, but, and mm -hmm. I had all these questions. Um, and I went and did this interview and I recorded it. And uh, sometime after that, I got home and I sent Jared an email. And I said, hey, I'm going to send you a transcript. I, I made a promise that I wasn't actually fully equipped to, um, like I was going to edit and then send a transcript and get his approval before I actually published it as a podcast. 
um, I didn't know how I was going to do that. Mm -hmm. And I still haven't published that interview. I've made references to, oh, no. So what, so sorry to back up. I wasn't a podcaster. I was a reviewer. And I had this idea that I had done so much thinking about American single malt whiskey. And I had so many questions that I felt only producers could answer. Whether I listened to other interviews or do my own primary research, I wanted to write a book on American single malt whiskey. I still do. That's no longer the immediate goal because it's a big lift for somebody who only writes reviews online, who is unknown in any other way, doesn't have an audience for the book, uh, whatever. It just, um, I, I would toil in silence for two, three years trying to write a book and uh, find a publisher and maybe do some, do some uh, you know, marketing with the public. I was just kind of thinking through this whole thing, like, I introduced myself as a reviewer who wanted to write a book on American single malt whiskey. And I realized after doing two review, uh, two interviews, I had no idea how I was actually going to take the steps to do that. Cause I've never written a book before. Uh, I've written blogs on various, uh, on various topics, um, mostly, you know, music tech, the things that I've been involved in before, but never with any regularity. It's like, sometimes you have an idea that feels worth writing down with whiskey. I felt I, I like, on a daily basis, I had an idea that felt worth writing down. Either it was a review or it was uh, some exploration of like, oh, how do, like, how do sherry casks work? Or like, what's this deal with new, new oak versus reused oak? Or, you know, why isn't there more American Pete? Like I've asked these questions and mostly I've answered in private on the discord. Um, mm -hmm. So I said, you know, I am not really a blogger because I don't actually publish that much. I'm a reviewer because I do publish the reviews on Reddit. Um, and I've started publishing the reviews on a, on a private blog because there was Reddit had a bit of a crisis. I don't use Reddit so much anymore because they killed the app that I was using. I was using RIF, which mm -hmm. was formerly known as Reddit is fun before Reddit said you can't use the trademark name. And then Reddit killed the API. So now the apps can't run. So all these mobile apps, like I was mostly using Reddit on mobile from the app and I can't anymore. So I'm not really on Reddit much anymore because it's so much harder. Like I have to. I have to, you know, instead of I've got the picture on my phone already and I can upload it and I can type my, my type my thoughts and publish it all in one place. I can't do that anymore. So it's like, and as long as I'm going to be working harder sitting at my computer, I want to control the publishing platform. So I'm, I'm currently part of a review blog called maltrunners.com, M-A-L-T, maltrunners. Um, has nothing to do with running. I don't exactly know why we chose that name, uh, but it's sort of a collective of, uh, I don't know, a dozen or so people who uh, we all respect each other's reviews and opinions. And like, even on Reddit, we're mostly reading each other's reviews. So we said, okay, if Reddit is going to die the slow death, um, which, you know, ended up not happening, right? Like all the subreddits came back online, everything's healthy and, and whatever. And mm -hmm. like, we have our own opinions about like where Reddit is going in terms of the audience and the type of people who comment and the types of comments that you get and whether it's a good place to write your reviews anyway. Um, but like for the people who still use Reddit, Reddit's fine. Um, it's just that, we got shaken loose and we felt we'd rather publish for each other and for people who were searching for our reviews online, instead of putting our stuff into the soup of Reddit and hoping that people see it. Right. You put things on Reddit and you're, I think as a whiskey reviewer, you're mostly hoping that people search for the product that you reviewed more so than you're hoping that people see your review right when it's posted and actually like upvote and comment yeah. and everything. And like I said, um, for me, I want to, I want to put a review out there as the start of a conversation and I want to have a conversation. And what happens on Reddit is, um, 
people see a review that is a product they don't recognize, they don't even click on it. Or they see a picture that looks pretty and they upvote and they don't actually upvote the review itself that's sitting in the comments. Um, or worse, you know, you give an honest review and you put a rating on it and somebody who either doesn't understand your rating scale or just disagrees with you says that you're wrong and it kind of derails into toxicity and you collect a couple of dozen upvotes and you move on with your life. And like, there's the whole, I posted on social media and now I have anxiety about how it's doing that. Like, you know, you post on Reddit and you post on Instagram and you post on Twitter and you're refreshing and checking all of this stuff. Or you just say, I don't care because what I really mm -hmm. want is I want to write this review and I'm going to post it in all those places just so that it's searchable and findable in the world and people can benefit from it. And what I really want to happen is I'm going to post it on Discord and I'm going to talk to people about that experience that I just had because that's how I want to enjoy whiskey. So I said, okay, why don't I just lean into that more? I like having conversations. So what I want to do is I want to, uh, I want to talk to producers and have conversations and I hope that a book comes out of it. But if a book doesn't come out of it, I can release this content along the way because other people can benefit from these conversations that I had. Uh, and then I said, well, okay, how am I going to do that? I should make a podcast. Okay, how am I going to make a podcast? I haven't got a clue, but I've I've recently started watching video game Twitch streamers, and I know that OBS is a piece of software I can use. So, okay, <laughs> I'm going to use OBS and Twitch, and I'm going to get together with a couple of my buddies, and we're going to come up with some topics, and we're going to do a weekly stream, and we're going to put information out into the world in a way that feels organic to us in a conversational format. So that's what we're doing for now. I still have hopes that a book is coming. Um, I still have asmwbook.com is a website that I registered and it just redirects to a landing page with some of my other links right now. But um, mm -hmm. I'm hoping to make a private blog soon. I was actually hoping to do it before this interview, but life has been too busy for me to bother setting up a WordPress. And I already have a WordPress where I'm posting reviews right now on maltrunners.com. And, you know, I'm posting reviews on Instagram. And um, Twitter is now dying the slow death don't need to get into that. Uh, I've pretty much stopped, but I uninstalled <laughs> the app and I don't post on Twitter much anymore. That's where I am too. Like I, I it, you know, as has soon the book as writing decide... commenced? Uh, I'll answer that question in the comments. Yes. The book writing has commenced. I was on a plane and I wrote, I don't know, 5,000, 6,000 words of various front matter for the book, like introduction and like uh, sort of an overview of how I want the book to go. Um, when I started uh, reaching out for interviews with producers, I sort of sent them my book outline, right? I, 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 here's the book outline as a, as a way of begging the questions that you could answer. Like, I want to know about your choices of barley and your choice of yeast and your choice of still and your choice of barrels and whether or not to peat and other sorts of, uh, or whether you're going to smoke the barley with something other than peat, which is a really interesting topic that I wish we had time to talk about, but we're already over two mm -hmm. hours. Um, I will be talking about that more on my podcast though. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I sent that outline. I sent that book outline and basically the idea was um, I wanted to ask as many of those questions to as many of the right people as possible and start filling in the outline of the book and having primary references and then figure out more questions to ask. So in a sense that, uh, so, so there is some prose that is written and there's mm -hmm. primary research conducted and there's an outline written and I, I think as, as, as much as not, that is the book writing process. So I'm comfortable saying that the book writing is underway. It sounds like you're 10% of the way, right? Because the average chapter in a novel is going to be four or 5,000 words. 
And, and I, I in, wrote 8,000 words on the topic of what is American single malt when the regulation proposal came out. Right. That, and so that, you're, uh, you're, you're at a place where minute read, something like that. you're probably looking for 10 or 12 chapters for, for this type of a, of a book, if I had to guess. And so you're about 10% of the way there with just yep. the thing that you've already written. Yep. Um, I need to get, uh, I need to put some reviews in there, get some more photography because I've been mm-hmm. using a cell phone camera and I need to get like a real camera and go revisit these distilleries. And maybe I mean, the cell phone I, camera pictures are enough. I don't know. Uh, but the public, here's the thing. Like, okay. So you, are you, are you going to, are you going to print in full color? I, I feel like that's, that's actually an interesting question. I want to, but because if you're going to print in full color with glossy pages, then maybe the camera matters. Yeah. But if you're going to print in full color with non glossy pages then the camera probably doesn't matter because you're going to start losing resolution. Like, and, and realistically, you know, at least with, I don't know, maybe you're an Android guy. I don't know. Maybe you're an iPhone guy. Doesn't matter. Uh, the camera resolution on most cell phones at this point are better than a $2,000 camera was 10 years ago. Yeah. So like we it, have it's, like a, it's a couple of DSLRs in the cabinet that don't make, they're a lot more trouble and they don't make as good pictures as the cell phones do. Not without, um, not without significant work to make sure yeah. your F-stops correctly. Like, my, my wife is the I artist, dabbled in photography that, but... years and years and years ago, back when a DSLR was absolutely the best thing that you could have. And, and now it just, yeah, it feels... There are two in this closet right here that belong to my my wife. I did. No, it's not for me. Cell phone yeah. will, will do a really, really good job. Now, yeah. you know, if you get to the point to where someone else is wanting to publish, then they may pay for the art themselves, but that's their problem, not yours. Yeah, and so there's a couple of ways this could go. Like, do I put reviews in it or not? I don't know. I haven't mm-hmm. decided. Uh, if I put reviews, if I don't put reviews, what pictures am I going to put in the book? Personally, well, you I dramatize think... it enough, too, so you can also make the documentary. You know, like, there's a, there's oh, a, there's yeah, a movie Yeah, here, you, you've you know? got to plan the media empire. Right, because, you, you know, you've got the success of the... Um, neat and then there is the empire rye uh documentary that's been created um there's the 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 women in whiskey are doing uh, a documentary like you can capitalize on the popularity of a documentary real quickly uh, and you can end up being yeah. like the fred minnick of the american single malt world right because all uh, of a sudden i'm blanking on that documentary that oh the water of life there you go it, yeah it just came out uh and we're uh me and my co-hosts are are going is on our to-do list to watch that documentary and mm-hmm. then have an episode where we discuss it. Because you're not going to do like a watch along on Twitch, like where you watch it while you're on a stream. So that's tricky because, um, you know, I'm all about following rules. Yep. And copyrighted content getting streamed through Twitch is a no, no, even if you could maybe get away with it. So even, what if you get permission? Hey, that's a question that I hadn't thought to ask. There you go. I'll 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 ponder that. I'll it's publicity, right? Like you yeah. got you got to look at it from this point. Like the worst that someone can do is tell you no. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I know, like with video game streamers, is like if you just stream like unedited video game content with like there's nothing else on screen and there's no commentary or anything like that, that's considered bad. But as mm-hmm. soon as you put your video stream so- on top of it and you start yep. talking over it and you're like doing fun things and interacting. That's what I'm saying. Like, you, so you've audience. got you and, and two other yeah. guys that are sitting around watching this movie. You, now you have made it discernibly different. You know, it's not significantly different than, you know, if, if you were to stream to YouTube while you're watching someone's music video and live reacting to it. Right. Like, this is a thing yeah. that happens. Yeah. You know, you're making Speaking a- of, there's a category of, of reviews that I've been pondering doing for a long time. And I like, just because of how much effort it would be and distract me from everything else I would like to do. 
as a person who's who's into music, especially classical music and whiskey, I felt like it would be cool to do a review series where I review a performance of a classical piece and review a pair of the whiskey at the same with time. It. Yeah, like yeah. a whiskey. Like, say, here's a whiskey that makes sense to pour with. I don't know Beethoven's Seventh Symphony, mm-hmm. and here's my review. Yeah, of I've Beethoven's got a whole Seventh list Symphony of like and- different like mid nineties grunge rock and what pairs with it or mid nineties and hip hop things that were real popular whenever I was in middle school and what whiskey needs like. I'm with you. Like this is a thing that that uh, you've got the classical route. I'm um the, yeah. I, <laughs> I've got the I've got the same list, just a different genre of music altogether. Yeah. Uh, aside from classical music, uh, I'll just weigh in on what else I'm listening to recently. Um, I find myself more and more often na- uh, um, gravitating towards things that are pop adjacent. Like mm-hmm. I'm not necessarily a fan of a lot of the stuff that turns up in the pop in the top forty. Um. But uh, Dua Lipa, I really like for some reason. Yep. Um, John Mayer, um, Jason Mraz, and Jack Johnson. I'm 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 sort of less interested in Jack Johnson these days. Like that sort of he's he's got great music, and he puts on an excellent live show. I will say, just a few years ago, I went to see Jack Johnson. Uh, a double header, same weekend at the at the Gorge in um, in sort of just east of the mountains in Washington. A uh, beautiful venue. Uh, two nights, John Mayer the first night, uh, and Jack Johnson the next night. And I am a huge fan of John Mayer, but Jack Johnson put on a better show that night. Uh, it just—I mean, like he he's been really touring knew how to twice as long audience. as John Mayer. Yeah, I, it's it's like actually kind of wild to think forever. about how long he has been doing it and how much music he's put out. So, like the fact that I say, like, if you randomly like, I have a playlist of like it's almost two hundred uh, Jack Johnson tracks. And you put it on random shuffle and it pretty much sound like no matter where it starts in the playlist, it pretty much sounds the same except for a couple of hits that stand out. Uh, there's like a whole lot of the same sort of like surfer beach vibes that like or like road trip vibes. I remember listening to Jack Johnson on like a two hour road trip down to uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was Corpus Christi. And then we went for a drive on the beach. Um, and this was this was for a school competition. I don't know how he pulled it off, but my teacher like rented a convertible like through the school to take like the, the three or four guys that were going to this competition on a road trip in a convertible car. And yeah, like top down listening to all kinds of stuff. Um, yeah. Fun times. But anyway, during that show, he played everything that stood out super distinctively, like all the hits that, you know, and like the, the stuff from the curious George stuff, he made sure to play Mm -hmm. before sunset. So the kids could go to sleep and the parents could still (laughs) stay up and listen to the rest of the show until 10 PM right all right so we've got you you're, you you've got a book to make now you've got to outline the docuseries that goes along with it what <laughs> have me back on the podcast when i actually have uh the book in writing in uh in uh publication uh pu- publicity stage yes uh, you know i'm i i have i have an interest in talking to authors i've had a few on um what like and I think you sort of touched on it, but like what made you distinctly feel like, you know what the thing that is missing from whiskey podcasting is my voice. Like what, yeah. what was the thing that hit that? Uh, <laughs> I, I feel like any answer to that verges on the conceited. Um, so I, I, I sort of like to be self-deprecating. I like the sound of my own voice. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
whether that's uh whether that's an in writing form or in um actual audio form um you know that's what people would say about me i talk a lot i i just I, i'm the sort of person if i know a topic i will never stop talking on it uh and more than just being the occasional podcast guest that made me feel like i had enough to say that i could have a podcast mm -hmm. um like i didn't it wasn't worried like i guess look at it another way I felt I had information that I wanted to put out into the world. I had some industry connections by way of Joe O'Sullivan, who introduced me to Jared Hempstead and um, sort of got me started on the whole, I can get in touch with American single malt whiskey producers. They kind of know who I am. They've heard about me maybe in passing at commission mm -hmm. meetings or whatever, because Joe has been a great proponent of my efforts to become more expert in American single malt whiskey and write about it. Uh, in reviews and otherwise with some level of authority, I guess, at least as a person who has a mouth, um, both for tasting and for talking. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess it was more that I, I sort of asked myself, why not? I, I had friends say, you know, like, you should write a blog. Um, you should share this information with more people than just the people sitting in this room. Uh, you know, I had a lot of people encouraging me to do something and I, kind of have just been trying to figure out what fits well. So, you know, I tried the writing reviews and doing nothing else. I tried doing the pictures and reviews on social media and felt like that didn't hit as well with me, like how I felt comfortable doing it. When I did the interviews, that felt like, I don't, I don't yet feel I'm doing it as well as other interviewers that I respect. Uh, you mentioned uh, whiskey in my wedding ring. Um mm -hmm the one nation under whiskey guys, I think uh, they talk about their own brand and their own knowledge super well. And they also do really good interviews. Uh, those are the sorts of people that I look up to. Uh, I think they're way better at it than I am, but I want to get there. Um, so it's, and it's it like depends a skill on what type of interview, interview you're trying to do. Cause I, David, I consider David, David, a friend, you know, we've spent time one-on-one -on -one together a number of times, but his interview style and mine is distinctly different. And I would never try to compete with his because he's far better at that than I am. But I listen to his to find questions that I want to ask whenever I listen to him talking to somebody else. I'm like, all right, now you're talking the nerdy thing. I'm going to log this to ask them about um, their whole 30 that they did, which is a, a thing that we should oh, hey. comment, right? You know, um, or any <laughs> any other number of like just real weird things, right? Because I, I want the the different conversation that he's doing. Um, but I, I understand that, and I think you, you said a phrase in here, and I think you you can take it or leave it. But I think you've created your own tagline for your podcast because you are a person who has a mouth for both tasting and talking. That is <laughs> quite possibly one of the best. I think that's beautiful. I think you should use that as a tagline for. Um, whatever audio venture that you're using, you know, because everybody's got to have a clever one, right? You know, whatever it happens to be. Um, that was best. I, I, I like that was good enough. I wrote it down. Like, I'm nice. Like, you don't use it. I'm stealing it. Oh, I'm gonna take it. I, I dibs. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't have to call dibs. Like you, there's literally <laughs> video evidence of you saying it first. That's right. I copyrighted it live. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You want to talk about a whole thirty? Yeah. Well, so I was going to say, and, and you may, you may experience this, you may not, but every six months I end up asking myself that exact question. Like, do you ever watch the office? You ever watch the, the yeah, yeah the a little bit. Yeah. Okay. There, there was a, more there was of an a episode. Parks and Rec fan. Uh, I kind of 
they're the same show just the different. office a little bit it's just yeah. a different tone but yeah yeah anyways there's 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 an episode where michael's asking a guy like what gives you the right and like i regularly find myself every six months or so looking in the mirror and be like what gives you the right to think that you should have a podcast like why why do you think you have a voice uh, maybe yeah. you suffer from that maybe you don't but you've got a I, great I almost would phrase it a different now. way Mm-hmm. Um, a question that was asked to me in the form of like mentorship at work is like, there was a project that I wanted to take on that like, wasn't being assigned to me and wasn't necessarily associated with my expertise at work or, or my work mm-hmm. responsibilities or whatever. There's a project that I wanted to do. I went to my manager and I said, Hey, can I do this essentially extracurricular project? Like, can I spend some time on this, you know, you know, some hours on a Friday or whatever. Um, and he said, I'm not going to say no to you. Something along the lines of like, I'm not going to say no to that because if it's something you want to do, you should do it. Instead, I'm going to ask you, why you? Mm-hmm. Right. Of all the people who could be doing this project, why is it a why is it a project that I should be doing? What's specifically unique about you that helps this particular project? Right. Or, you know, what about my interests makes it better that I participate as opposed to somebody else? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You don't even have to name the other person, but it's like whoever it is. Yeah. I do ask myself that. I would say, um, Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you do New Year's resolutions. Um, I don't really like New Year's resolutions because it's like, it's too big of a thing to say, I'm going to make this goal for the year. Um, What I do instead is, um, and not necessarily on a schedule, but something like quarterly. Um, I will give myself some goals and across all that I have, I am a man of many hobbies, uh, just as pertains to the Demi taste brand. I do whiskey and coffee and other spirits and blog writing and interviewing and podcasting. And none of this is my day job, mm-hmm. right? I, I work, uh, 50, 60 hours a week, you know, at a tech job. And then I'm trying to fit all this other stuff in. And on top of that, I also am an athlete. I train for four to six hours a week um, mm. and I need to cook and, you know, I make myself coffee uh, in a, not a necessarily a quick way, like every day. <laughs> and I play music two hours a week or more if I'm actually practicing, mm-hmm. which I don't do enough. Um, I'm fitting all of this stuff around. And then, um, you know, I was on the board of my orchestra for a while. And at some mm-hmm. point I started asking myself, why me? Um, there was, there was a certain guilt of like, if I leave, who else is going to do this job? And that went away when the board cycled and we had enough knowledge transfer that other people could do it. And at some point they said like, Hey, do you want to take a break? And I said, Oh yes, absolutely. Yes. It was never easier to say yes to, could, do you want to stop doing something? It's not mm-hmm. something I don't usually stop doing things. Right. But when they said, Hey, like, do you want to take a break? I was like, absolutely. Yes. Like if it's easy, to, easy to say it. yes to, to stopping doing something, then that definitely yeah. means it's time to stop. Yeah. So, um, and that basically came out of like, um, on the quarterly basis, I was kind of saying like, I'm not really into this board thing anymore. I don't know if I'm really contributing what I used to be contributing. I'm kind of just doing it because I feel like they need me. It's not something that I'm getting anything out of anymore. Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I sort of traded that in for, I started working as an assistant coach, not working. It's, it's a volunteer job. Uh, I started doing assistant coaching for my dragon boat team. Uh, and then I sort of said like, you know, I have this in it's, it's not a different thing so much as I like helping people learn how to do things. Mm -hmm. Um, And so like I've been paddling dragon boats for seven years, six years now, something like that. Um, And 
you know, sometime, sometime around the fourth year, I felt like, you know, I kept getting good feedback about my technique. And I also know that I'm good at explaining, at least I think I'm good at explaining to people how to do things in a way that might stick with them. So mm -hmm. why don't I actually formalize that in some sense and start like doing some coaching? So, um, this happened to be basically going into, I did some coaching classes and I went in, and we went into 2020 and the pandemic happened. And we had to, when we started bringing people back out, it was dockside, everybody wears masks, people get in the boat, coaches stand on the dock and we're like yelling at the other person, like just intense technique focus, right? It was actually a really good way to learn how to be a coach. Um, mm -hmm. is that like, it's not just, it's not even a training plan, right? Training plans are a whole aspect of coaching technique is an aspect of coaching that usually has to fit into the training plan. In this context, it was, there's nothing but the paddler and the coach and their technique. And you need to figure out what you can tell them. That's going to take them the next step better. And it's, it's a mentally exhausting process. Um, both because like you want to make sure that you're saying things in a way that are clear while not offending anybody. Uh, like you have to be careful about like, if, if you're, when you're talking about somebody's body, yep. right, you have to be really careful with the words and the phrasing. And especially I'm, I'm in my thirties and uh, dragon boat is a sport full of people in their fifties and sixties and seventies. Uh, there's a lot of cancer survivors in dragon mm -hmm. boat. Um, the reasons for that are interesting. Go look up if you're interested. Basically it comes down to that type of sport, that type of motion is good for dealing with some of the, uh, some of the side effects of, post-cancer treatment like cancer mm -hmm. recovery so um in this specific northwest area specifically a lot of cancer survivors sort of get funneled into or find dragon boating either because of doctor's recommendations or friend recommendations or whatever um and so there's a whole aspect of the team that is uh cancer survivor stuff and we do lots of ceremonies and recognition and that sort of thing yeah I've, 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 I felt I've gone way too boating. far off on a tangent. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, that's, I mean, listen, that's, that's what the name of this particular uh, thing is. Like, this is, this is what we're after. Um, you ever, like, you're talking for a while and, like, you're like, this is fine, this is fine. And then all of a sudden you feel like you've just gone too far. No, <laughs> I don't know that I have that degree of self-awareness. I mean, maybe that's a problem, you know, like, I, I, I need... There, there's been more than one occasion, at least during the pandemic, when we were all working from home and, you know, like I'm on a meeting and I'm talking and my wife is in this other office over here and she's doing, you know, she's an educator. And so she's doing her thing. And I've been talking for a while and I look over and she's just sort of staring at me like, are you going to shut up? Like, you need to give someone else a chance <laughs> to talk. And so I, maybe I don't have that in me uh, in the same way. Um, you mentioned making coffee. What? What is your what is your laborious method that you're using to make coffee? Like, are you a pour over guy? Are you you, you pulling espresso uh, shots? Like, what's happening? It's a, it's a very much a I feel thing. Um, funny enough, I've never owned like a um, like a Mister Coffee type of machine, like the machine mm -hmm. where it's like it grinds the beans for you, and you put in some water, and you put in the coffee filter in the basket, and you just let, let it run for a while. I've never mm -hmm. owned that kind of machine. Uh, reason why coffee from that kind of machine I never liked. And right. I would drink coffee if I needed coffee to get me caffeinated. Yes, yeah, so but I would do the, it. The from... Coffee from that machine is for caffeination. Like right. that is it's coffee that is with the... a job to do. Yeah, it's Absolutely. not meant to taste good. Um, so like besides that, it was like I would have I would have Starbucks and like Starbucks is dessert, right? Like you you go mm -hmm. there and you get a you get a chocolate sundae with coffee flavor in it or something like that, right? Um, that was like I think a pretty typical 
pretty typical coffee experience. And that was my coffee experience for a very long time. Uh, sort of just like whiskey and just like alcohol. I didn't start really drinking coffee until I was maybe, um, I didn't drink coffee for most of college actually even um like the occasional yeah, i don't know tea. To, like i'm fine with this like holding off on drinking alcohol until you're 21 that doesn't bother me in the slightest but i was drinking coffee when i was like 11 we, yeah we I, I, I uh my mom was real good about keeping me away from coffee uh mm-hmm. and we would have tea in the afternoon if i needed like some you know i needed to wake up a bit to do more homework or whatever um at a very busy school life too because i was doing orchestra and swimming and yep uh academics all at the same time and that was uh every single day was full every hour so uh you know every once in a while i needed some caffeine but not every day um and it was just tea um and uh i sort of just took that with me into college and i kept drinking tea even for the first couple of internships i did and sometime around when i was 21 or 22 and doing an internship i had an internship where they had like this automatic coffee machine coffee making machine where it's like you Mm -hmm. press a few buttons and like 20 seconds later it spits out a cup of coffee and like right. that's too convenient to ignore, <laughs> um, right? And then I did a whole thirty, and I had to cut out sugar and milk. Uh, and and I'll probably talk about both now. Uh, so mm-hmm. um, whole thirty for anyone who doesn't know is an elimination diet. It's kind of a fad diet. Um, it's in ways related to keto and paleo, um, which makes it easy to sort of find food that works for whole 30 whole 30 is like eliminate anything in your diet, which might be causing dietary distress or inflammation, whether there are see, good reasons or not do it anyway is basically see you kids says. these days. That's I'm, 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 I'm going to get on my old man uh, bucket here <laughs> because keto is a relatively new thing, but whole 30 hit in 2011, 12 ish timeframe. When no one no one was yeah. talking about keto then, and the first whole thirty that we did in this house, hmm. my wife and I was around two thousand and twelve, and so there was no keto friendly foods. It was basically you're gonna cook everything for three meals a day, seven days a week because there's no restaurant that can serve you things that are going to be keto friendly there's no there's no thing you can buy it was just like an endless cycle of making dishes incredibly Absolutely. valuable like we were doing it for a lot of reasons it was you know sort of testing out some um, diet restriction after she had given birth to our first child and like you mm-hmm. know hormonal imbalance and thyroid problems and whatever and we did one annually for like 4 years after that but this is back when like no potatoes were a part of Whole30. Like when it first came out, like you could have no potatoes. And it was like, ah, sweet potatoes are okay. And now it's like, ah, white potatoes are okay. Oh, really? They added white potatoes? Hmm, interesting. As I long think, as not I, fried, I believe right? I read that recently, but we, we think, sort of, you know, have this wrong, past it. Uh, that, that like, uh, so sweet potatoes are, are yams actually are different, are different like class of uh, different, I don't know, whatever, somewhat unrelated to potatoes. Right. Yams and potato, yams and, and like white potatoes are unrelated um, the, to they, a large degree. Yeah, I mean, they're both tubers, you know, in the same way yeah. that a carrot is a tuber. But I think, at least from what I remember of reading the book. So, like, white potatoes are considered ago. a nightshade, I think, is the, is the distinction that I'm making there. There was nothing that precluded a white potato from being Whole30 compliant, aside from, specifically in North America, our reliance on white potatoes mm. for a substantial portion of diet 
in a way that especially we like fried and French fries, right? And an unhealthy relationship yeah. with the potato was the right. reason why they did not have it on the list to begin with. And when they right. brought it in to the discussion, if I remember correctly, it was largely like, okay, this is on the list mainly so you could go out and have dinner somewhere, right? Yeah. Because if you could, if you could have a potato. Mm-hmm. You can probably make it just about anywhere, right? Right. Salad, but, potatoes, steak, you're done, right? Yeah. Like, that's, that's a meal And hope out. that they didn't put butter on something by accident. Right, yeah. We did we did something like that once. I don't remember if I asked about the butter. I think uh, kind of – so, yeah. Um, when I – so, in college, I had to learn – I had to learn how to cook for myself. Uh, mm-hmm. And, like, it's not that I didn't know how to cook. Like, I, I actually – I really liked making garlic shrimp uh, when I was, like, 13, 14 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, everybody can fry an egg and like, uh, frying vegetables is kind of, but no you didn't build, and... build up like a repertoire of meals. You had like three right. things you could make and that was it. Right. Right. So like if I was hungry and my parents were out and I needed to make a snack that was something better than potato chips. Cause like as an athlete, I was thinking about that. Like eat, mm-hmm. if you're hungry, eat healthy food, eat, eat, eat nourishing, like full of vitamins, protein, whatever. Um, so yeah, I, I had to learn how to make a few things. Um, in college, I had to learn how to cook for myself, but it ended up being um, like a, a mix of like frozen hamburger patties and frozen fish patties and frozen fish and like some instant meals or some like sauce mixes or that sort of stuff. And then like I would do like a big pot meal. Mm-hmm. Um, I made, I love making stew. Beef stew is one of my favorite things to make. You know, real simple recipe. Like you, you got to do, the hardest thing is is you know you get the cubed beef shoulder or whatever um and then you you coat it in the salt pepper flour and you and you like sort of stir fry that a bit to sort of brown it get that maillard reaction going mm-hmm. um which is something that whiskey nerds should know about because that's one of the flavor country contributing factors um but also people who cook and bake know about the yep. maillard reaction maillard reaction probably saying it wrong now i'm self-conscious I, um, it's <laughs> i've heard it both ways i don't know which one's right i'm from kentucky i accept it so, um, yeah, you, you fry that up and then, uh, you basically just, the rest is just cutting vegetables, right? You got, you, you put in some carrots, you put in some potatoes, maybe sweet potatoes if you want, uh, celery, um, I, you know, whatever else you want to put in there really. Um, and then you top it off with the meat, you put some beef stock in there, um, put it on the slow cooker next morning. You have, you know, you have a meal for, you have meals for four or five days right? Mm -hmm. Perfect college cooking. The other thing I really liked doing was a big wok of, I had like these curry mixes, like you, the, the instructions on this bottle of curry mix was like, you take a scoop of this, you put it in the pan with some sesame oil, you fry it up. And then you put some coconut milk in there. You put some chopped chicken thigh and basically the same vegetables, sweet potatoes, potatoes, carrots, you know, whatever you throw that all together and you got food for four or five days. Chopping broccoli. I didn't mention broccoli, but um, I'm not sure if I would put broccoli in stew or I guess you could put it in the curry. I don't mm-hmm. think I did. I didn't do a whole lot with putting broccoli in big pot dishes, but I did stir fry broccoli a lot. Um, See, ours just yeah. went in the oven. It was it was a lot easier. Just roast it in the oven. Let it get I didn't really get into it. oven cooking until probably the last couple of years, actually. Um, See, the, the, most of my college jobs were working in a restaurant kitchen, and not like a McDonald's restaurant kitchen or an Applebee's, but we had uh, you know a couple of local places where I got to learn how to fry and grill and and dip, which was you know anything that was sort of pre-made and wash dishes and all these different things. So that way, um, I I learned how to cook because I didn't want to eat 
just stuff out of a box whenever my parents were working because, you know, I grew up in the mid-90s and our parents were never around. We just sort of raised ourselves on TV. Um, and so, I, you know, like you figure out how to cook a few things, but then, like, you get to college, you're like, I'm going to go work in a restaurant. Now you learn how to, like, cook, cook, like, using spices and exploring yeah, new recipes yeah. and whatnot. I was um, always good with spices. Uh, my dad yeah. used to have me make the spice mixes. Like, that was uh, when you're, like, eight and you want to help your dad in the kitchen, putting together the spice mix is, like, a thing you can do that's relatively not dangerous. Like, mm -hmm. you're not going to burn anything down. You're not going to ruin dinner because, like, you can always try it taste it if it's horrible like start over right like you got a you got a chance so like i was good with putting spices together i had i had kind of a knack for figuring out interesting spice mixes um one of my favorite i don't refer to recipes a whole lot because you kind of just have cooking fundamentals one of mm -hmm. my favorite things though somebody sent around an imager album that was just like a glorified blog post that was like here's steak but 12 different spice mixes that you can use to make your space to make your steak different so like one was basically a chimichurri and one was like uh put harissa paste and a couple of things together and make like a north african steak and uh, mm -hmm. a couple other things like that and i go back to that list all the time because it's just a fantastic like you're making steak but you just change the spices and you have a completely different meal come up with some side dishes yeah i mean work. like you know beef has some flavor to it but largely it's a it's a neutral palate to add a lot of flavor to my wife and I were talking about that, you know, like, cause there, there's a distinct flavor for chicken thighs, but if it's chicken breasts, it's also a neutral palate, right? In most mm -hmm. steak, mm -hmm. um, unless you get something that's super, super fatty, you know, like there's this, there's this obsession with filet mignon and it, like, it doesn't have a ton of flavor to me. It's a great place to put salt and pepper and uh, you get the chewy charred meat and salt and pepper. And that's, that's the flavor that you get from it. If you got a good quality steak though, I think you've got that, the, the beefy flavor, is right sort of the thing that you're going for sometimes yeah but see that i think most north american palates are not really <laughs> wanting a beefy flavor they don't want anything that's sort of really out there they want everything sort of be to be muted and so mm -hmm. a lot of what you purchase even when you purchase premium stuff is still not going to be unless you're buying something that's super dry age that's you know lost a lot of moisture content and it's um, getting down to its essence flavor still yeah. So uh, if you've been on my Instagram recently, you'll see that it's full of uh, I got a smoker this year. Mm -hmm. um, I missed Texas enough and I have an, I have a nice big deck now after I moved. I decided to get a smoker and I started smoking briskets and then I started smoking other things. And uh, recently I just smoked some sirloins. Mm -hmm. uh, I kind of heard that was a thing. I wasn't sure how it would turn out. It's actually really good as a yeah. sort of I mean, neutral palate to absorb smoke. Yeah. And as a as a peated scotch whiskey lover, you know, Put smoke in more things, please, and thank you. That's So this is the thing, right? So the, the, we'll bring this back around a little bit, and this may be the last thing that we've got. You know, We've got a few minutes to talk through this. So in the United, in the United States, largely smoky whiskey, nobody's interested in, and very specifically in bourbon country. But also what is huge in bourbon country is smoked meats. And these things, Two things run so close, parallelized that like, what the hell? Like, how do we like? How is this? How is this not a thing? Like, how is smoky whiskey not a thing in a place where we want to consume pounds on pounds on pounds of smoky meat? That's a really great point, and you're suddenly making me realize that probably my first, uh, my first introduction to smoke was through the excessive smoked meats and so on that you get in 
you're in Texas. You had South, brisket. Yeah. You had yeah. tons of brisket, like and yeah. good. And smoked everything brisket. else. And uh, my you family know, and uh... pork and chicken and all of these things. And the smokier the better. Like if you pull up to a barbecue joint in anywhere in the South and you don't see smoke coming out of the building, you leave, right? Because yeah, yep. you, you, it's true. they're it using liquid smoke and they're liars, right? It's not a real thing. Yep. And, you know, the introduction of the pelletized grill made things a little bit bastardized, but there's still some smoke to it. But yeah. these same mine's, people... Mine's a pelletized smoker, and I'm not thinking too hard about it because I get... Uh, it's really hard to get good... The problem with brisket around here, there's, there's a lot of people in this area that, like, have opened up barbecue joints, yep. like, make... Uh, you know, we're going to make smoked brisket ribs and, and whatever, right? We're going to do the, the, we're going to do the Texas style barbecue. Um, and I've long contended that pretty much every barbecue place has one meat specialty. And just because their brisket is great doesn't mean that everything else there is great. It's just because their it's baby back ribs not. are great. The, the, the ribs may be great and the other things may be passable. Yeah. I that's, could that's... almost think of specific places where they have the, this is where you go when you want really good beef rib barbecue beef ribs this is the place you go when you want really good baby back ribs this -hmm. is the place you go when you want really good brisket really good moist brisket this is the place that you go when you want the awesome homemade polish sausage barbecue style yes um and i wouldn't say that i I can't though going through that list i don't think any of those places is the same place um and then like i never really uh i don't think i found a place that i felt the the barbecue chicken or turkey was particularly to my liking more mm-hmm. so than just having it at home like like a regular it's... old grilled chicken like a rotisserie grilled chicken at home that's not barbecue style was it's tough to me. smoke a chicken because it's going to get dry yeah that's what's going to happen to it it's going to get dry right yeah. like you got to be very very good at it you go to like if you go to a chicken like a smoked chicken competition you'll find somebody that can do it well but that's because they stood over top of it like it's hard to commercialize that and make it great um, so it, 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 I don't know, but you're right. Like in, in our area, there's the place for the ribs. There's a place for the shoulder. There's, there's not a place for brisket. I'm in Kentucky. Mm. There's not mm. a good place for brisket, but we do have some mutton floating around, you know, like there, 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 there's some mm. of that, that that's here or there, but yeah, I like a good mutton, them... but, but at home, I don't think I had ever had a Texas styles, like mutton barbecue. Um, but yeah, we, we liked making, uh, I have a Bulgarian background, Bulgarian Croatian. Mm-hmm. Um, we uh, we sometimes eat like the Middle Eastern food like that. We have like the like a lamb, uh, the mushui, um, you know, mutton, you know, by any other name, right? Like that that sort of that whole thing. Um, the 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 sort of stewed pot dishes uh, like the juvich and and like the glorified uh, clay pot stew, right? Mm-hmm. Just like that special style with the spices and and whatever way we did a lot of really good home cooking. Um, and also, uh, I, I grew up in New Jersey and New York. So we had, uh, um, we had like the sort of Italian and like the, the smoked, um, the deli meats and the, um, you know, the pastrami sandwiches and, and the Rubens and, and yes, uh, the the thing that you can't get a good one anywhere in the state of Kentucky. Like there's not going to be a good pastrami or, a Reuben largely yeah. in this entire state, you're going to have to fly somewhere to get or make it or make it yourself. Like so you learn how to make these things because yeah, you're not going to get a good one. Uh, so yeah, up in this area, there's people who claim to do Texas barbecue and there's people who aren't from Texas who say this stuff is good. I had a, uh, the manager of my manager at my old company for a long time was also from central Texas. 
And uh, we commiserated often over the fact that every time a new barbecue place opened up that was supposed to be good, a new Texas barbecue place, we would go and try it. And it just isn't there. It just isn't the thing. Yep. Uh, just well, and, do and, it. and it's the people that are saying that it's good. They don't understand what Texas barbecue actually was. They may have had barbecue in Texas one time, mm-hmm. but it was probably some borderline chain joint mm-hmm. that was, you know, whatever. And the barbecue is subjectively good, mm-hmm. but if you're putting it on the measuring stick of Texas brisket or Kansas City ribs or you know, North Carolina, um, pull choke, you know, pull pork or whatever, then it doesn't measure up to those things. Right. And, but you have that like resource of knowledge of like, Oh yeah, this is not it guys. This, this, this comes back it. to that buy local, right? Like you find yep. your good local barbecue joints. Some of the places are like good enough to be worth traveling for. Um, like if you're, if you ever find yourself in central Texas and you happen to be driving from like Waco to Houston, uh, you'll, you'll go near a town called Lockhart. Um, and there's a barbecue place in there called Blacks, and they have the best uh, beef ribs there. Mm-hmm. Blacks Barbecue in Lockhart, Texas. Uh, they they have a they have a spot in Austin now. I think I haven't tried it, so I can't say whether it's as good. Um, but like it's even though they have another location, they're very much local. Uh, Franklin's Barbecue in Austin, which like everybody has heard of, there's a line out the door all the time. Place burned down. That's how you know it's legit. Um, they moved to a different location or there's still a line out the door, right? They also have excellent beef ribs, but you're going to be waiting forever. Like literally, um, I went to visit Austin and dedicated an entire day to camping in line for barbecue ribs. I don't camp for (laughs) bourbon. I camp for ribs. So my question is, so you've got this place, Lockhart, would it have been better for you to just drive to them and come back than wait in line all day long? Like, could you have done uh, it, that? It probably would have been, but I didn't, I didn't know that that was there at the time. We ah. figured that out later. Um, but yeah, we literally have made the drive from Houston to Lockhart and back. And it was so good. It didn't even register with me that that was five hours of driving <laughs> two and a half hours each direction, basically. Right. Yeah. I mean, like it, it, uh, when you live in rural America and you have to drive a long distance to get at anything, um, you sort of understand these things. And, you know, I, I have, and, and I'll probably, we'll probably close with this, but we have, I have this one distinct barbecue experience. Um, my wife and I were driving through, um, Alabama on our way to uh, vacation at the beach and on the way down, like we stopped and picked up lunch somewhere and we go through and it's like, you know, we hit this, this billboard and it's just like, you know, the 20, 2006, you know, world champion barbecue restaurant, whatever. Right. And I'm like, okay, I'm logging this in my brain because this is, you know, a Kansas city barbecue competition. So there's a legitimate nature to what they're doing here. This place probably has good barbecue. We're going to hit it on the way back. You know, when we come back from vacation, we're going to stop at this place. Remember, it's got a black sign. It's shaped like a pig. Unique billboard. Black sign shaped like a pig. So we're rolling back through, you know, a week later, and we see the sign. Black sign shaped like a pig. Voted best barbecue, right? So we pull off. And I'm super excited because it's like barbecue. It's like a thing. It's like a southern thing, you know, whether it's pork or it's beef or whatever. Like, heck yeah. We pull in and it's got all the markings. You go inside and it's like, you know, 1970s wood paneling and it's pictures of people's family on the wall. And there's like an old person running the cash register and it's like a push button cash register. There's no like screen to it. So it has all the markings of what's going to be great barbecue. And 
I have never eaten something that was closer to a hot circle of garbage in my life. It was <laughs> awful. It was terrible. And like, we're super let down. We're super disappointed. And so, you know, we, you know, we eat the bread and we eat around the edges and the baked beans taste like they came straight out of a can. Like the whole experience was just blown. And we get in the car well, super let down because, you know, she was excited about it, <laughs> mainly for me, not in the same level. And we get in the car and drive maybe like an hour and a half. And then I see another billboard, the exact same shape. Right? <laughs> this restaurant had started putting billboards up and they were like voted the best barbecue in their city. And so they obscurely advertised it, right, to catch people on the way back, like on the way back because this is a primary path to go to the beach we pull in this other place and i'm already full from the hot circle of garbage restaurant where we ate you know fries or whatever else and it's like drive through only there's stacks of wood around the outside of it there's an old dude with like one eye that's running the cash register and also the pit at the same time and i'm like this is what it's supposed it. to be this it, is it, it was this it is was one of it was one of the best places. like that's how you decide like you may have made a good choice. Like if you feel like you have an equal chance of getting robbed or getting good food, you're probably at the right place for good barbecue. Yeah. Like that's, that's, that's the marker. But the same people who love that also want to crap on smoky whiskey. And I don't understand it. <laughs> uh, well, we could just name, uh, close on this uh, sentiment more for us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So we we need to hit any places that you want people to find you to to reach out to you to contact you to to follow you. Right, they're in the show notes, but go ahead and give them that as well. Yeah, uh, I'm Demi Tastes everywhere. Um, you can find me on Discord at the Whiskey Lodge. Um, uh, you can find me on oh, except on Reddit, I'm Demi Reticent because I made that username before. You can't change your username on Reddit, so you know that sucks. Uh, yeah, so Demi Reticent on Reddit, that's where you can find my reviews. That's like, for better or worse, that's my biggest review archive all in one place. Um, I'm working on making it on the on the blog. Um, find me at demitastes.com. Uh, keep an eye on asmwbook.com for when that lights up with information about the book to come. Um, you can also find me on Twitter, where I'm not really hanging out anymore. You can find me on Instagram uh, uh, as Demi Tastes. Also, uh, threads, I'm Demi Tastes. Uh, but like, you know, who's really using threads? It's, it's like, it's, it's, I want it the to work. Time. I want it to work, but like somehow it just doesn't seem to, it's not reaching that critical mass of whiskey nerdery that, that needs to be there before it's a good place to hang out. But yeah, um, I do still check Twitter. If you want to get in touch with me on Twitter, you can do that. Um, you can also send me an email at, uh, uh, Doug at Demi tastes.com or, uh, if, or Demi taste at gmail.com. I have that as well. Um, yeah, uh, I think that pretty much covers it. Uh, Discord is pretty much going to be the best way. Uh, I mean, I also I'm I'm on I'm on Instagram more often than anything else besides uh, Discord. So like Discord and Instagram probably the best way. You can send me a private message on either one of them. Uh, I'll be more likely if you're on Discord. I'll be more likely to see your message if you join the Whiskey Lodge first because I have you know the notification settings down to prevent spam. Um, you absolutely should join the Whiskey Lodge. Um, I sort of said to myself I would try to be uh, less of a less of an advocate for myself and more of an advocate for the Whiskey Lodge. The Whiskey Lodge is the place where I learned almost everything that I know about mm -hmm. whiskey, or at least at least inspired me to ask the right questions to help me learn 
everything that I know about whiskey now. Uh, we love beginners. We love making recommendations. So um, if you're, and also we have tons of expert people in there. I would, I would call them experts, right? We have tons of people mm -hmm. who really know what they're talking about. Scotch, independent bottlings. I didn't know anything about before I met people there. Um, basically any question you have at any level of whiskey geekery, we can help you. Um, we also, if you're looking for a community to do a quarterly dry week, we do that extremely regularly. We take that really seriously because health is important when you're consuming poison for a hobby. Um, we have some uh, producers join in with us on the dry week thing because uh, we've convinced, you know, that they already know, but uh, having a community, right? We've convinced them that we're a community worth doing it with. So uh, I take pride in that. Um, look forward to seeing you all. And, and, and thanks for, we've been going for three hours. If you're still hearing me talk about these places that you should go check me out, I really appreciate you sticking around. Yeah, there's still there's still folks here. Like we, I see the count in the corner, and and I'll echo the 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 Discord comments, you know, because I, I hopped on today, um, just kind of you know feeling it out, you know, and seeing what's here, and you know I've got to go through the back the backlog of everything that's been said, so that way, you, you know, you're not the new guy who says something that yeah that we said this three weeks ago. Shut up, new guy. That kind of thing. But one of the things that did catch me right off the bat was the mention of Dry Week and the list of addiction resources for substance abuse organizations. Like, there's a very concerted effort to make sure that the members are um, sort of treating this hobby of ours very respectfully because it can be very, very harmful to, to a very distinct segment of people. Um, and, you know, I've seen some... Some folks that who were in this whiskey podcasting game that have left as a result of wanting to kind of like check their um, own personal relationship with alcohol. So there's a lot of like that's the I'm in one, two, three, four, at least 15 different discord channels. Most of them have to do with whiskey. This is the first one that I've came across that that's like a primary thing that's like right in your face as you hop on. So kudos to you guys. It's absolutely uh, appropriate. Uh, one of the things that I am going to call out here is that, you know, I sent you a list of questions we were going to talk about. And there were like nine things, and we talked about three. Yeah. <laughs> so this is probably going to have to happen again. You know, like yeah, we're probably going to have to do some more and have another conversation. But I expect you to have at least 20 or 30 more pages on the book done before we talk again. So that way we can kind of talk about it. Hey, that's so a fair you goal. Gotta set the yeah. goal. Yeah. 20, 20 or 30 pages is what you got to have done. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be your. Was it editor? Editors are the ones that tell you when you have to have pages done. That's that's producer. What I don't know. Producers for media. Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. I don't. Whatever. I don't know what yeah. it is. I think it's. I think it's a manager. Book I. I don't know. <laughs> I've got a friend that wrote a book. I. That's not a thing for me. Like, you know, like any good '90s kid, I started up 17 different blogs, and after about two weeks, it was like, damn, this is oh, really a thing for me. Oh, uh, tell me about the '90s kids' blogs. I. Uh, yeah. I. Uh, I happily burned one to the ground. I was able to delete everything. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to talk about what they were because they likely still exist. If you were going to, you know, the Wayback the Wayback Machine or Archive.org or something like, you could probably still find it. And nobody needs to read any of that. Not like yep. there was anything no. offensive. It was just like not good. It, it wasn't so, coherent. I think is probably the most the, the the most charitable way of putting it. No one should have given us access. <laughs> to be able to write things. Like it yeah. wasn't, it wasn't a reasonable, uh, reasonable who, situation. Who would so. let kids on the internet? Uh, let's not, let's parents not of eighties and nineties kids that. because they were not there. Parents. But that's also another conversation. But back parents to the of 2010s and 2020s kids also, and they have tablets now. Right. Yeah. 
Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to put you in the green room. I'm going to close out here. Yeah, Thank good. you for hopping on and having the conversation. Um, it's been super interesting and we're going to have to do this again. Thanks for tuning in for this offering from the embellished podcast. If you enjoyed this, please leave me a review on whatever platform that you have to be consuming this on. Leave a comment if possible, hit me up on social media at Twitter or Instagram using embellished pod, or give me a follow so you can keep up with what's going on here. I can also be found at www.embellishpod.com with all of my links, accounts, contact details, and more. Thanks for stopping by.